comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. This episode features special guest Peter Rios of the Daily Rios podcast and formerly of the Comic Geek Speak podcast. So sit back and relax as the two of us talk about some 80s comic geekdom. And then from there, Donnie Salvo hops on the show and then me and Donnie just have some free-form, free-flow conversation. Enjoy the talks and enjoy the episode. It's a lot of fun. I'm not going to get in depth as to what's going on because you'll hear it as the show goes along. Before we get to our feature presentation, I just wanted to remind people that the uh, Jamal Igo Kickstarter for Molly Danger is still going. Uh, as of this recording, uh, Molly Danger has raised um, close to $16,000. Um, it's trying to reach a $45,000 goal. Um, and as you heard in our previous PKD Black Box episode, where we interviewed Jamal Igo about Molly Danger, he is trying to raise $45,000 to produce a oversized a 9 by 12 graphic book, Molly Danger, an all-ages action-adventure book for the kid and all of us and the adult and all of us. In order to do so, he's trying to raise the funds, and as I said before, he's close to $17,000, and with uh, less than 15 days to go, um, like I said before, this is a book I strongly get behind. Um, I think you should, too, if you're a fan of comics, uh, you're a fan of oversized books, uh, with quality content and quality art and a quality story. Uh, Molly Danger is something you should really get behind. If you're a fan of Jamal Eigel's work and you've, you know, and you've like, you know, bought that copy of Supergirl or Firestorm or the Kiss IDW comic or New Warriors, all the stuff he's worked on, check out his Kickstarter. Go to kickstarter.com and then in the search header, just type Molly, Molly Danger, M-O-L-L-Y, Danger. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And if you dig it, donate. And it's a win-win for Jamal if you do. And there are a lot of cool rewards that you can choose from depending on how much you pledge. So take a look at it. Check it out. Support it. You know, support creator-owned comics and uh, support something that continues to give to all ages, to benefit all ages. Let's get behind Molly Danger. And now, our feature presentation. I'm on the line right now with a man I've known for a few years. Um, he's a really good dude. He is a man of many talents. Uh, some say he has happy feet. He is also an educator. He's also one of the original podcasters that I started to listen to when I got into comic book podcasts. He is one. He's one of the original founding members of Comic Geek Speak. He also has a new podcast out called The Daily Rios. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a man of many talents, Mr. Peter Rios. Peter, how you doing, sir? Sean, I am awesome, and I am uh, happy to be here for the first time here at the PKD uh, Black Box. Do you even call it the PKD Black Box anymore? Yeah, right? sure do. Yeah, okay. sure do. Yeah, oh yeah, that ain't changed. <laughs> All right. I just get the episodes. I don't even pay attention anymore to the title. I just sort of like listen to it. But uh, we've known each other more than a few years. It's been, yeah. you know, it's been a long time, and this is this is awesome. I'm I'm 
you know, I was so glad. I'm sorry it took so long for us to actually do this, but here we are. Oh, dude, it's cool, man. I remember you sending me a direct message on Twitter years ago. Uh, and it was, it was like, JLA Detroit? JLA Detroit? Oh, you don't know nothing about JLA Detroit. When you want to talk about JLA Detroit, you come get me. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, yes, we have to do this. So this has actually been years in the making. And a lot of it is just my fault because of my schedule and, and, and timing and whatnot. And I am just really glad to have you on the show, man. Thanks. Thanks. No, and then, you know, don't forget, there was that year that I was sort of just away from podcasting for a while that, you know, I was sort of just distancing myself for a little bit. But I'm back. We're here. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yes. Now, for for listeners that don't know about Justice League Detroit, um, it was in the Justice League of America a series from DC Comics in the 1980s. Um, Justice League, I call it Justice League Detroit, and a lot of my friends call it Justice League Detroit because the team was, A, based in Detroit, and a lot of people make jokes about Justice League Detroit. But I'm going to tell you, it is one of the best Justice League runs during that era of the 80s before we got to the Bwahaha era there was Justice League Detroit and if I'm not if I'm not mistaken it lasted was it almost three years uh let's see I'm gonna pull it's from 1984 to about 19 yeah about 1986 maybe into 87 a little bit okay because Legends came Legends came out in 87 and I remember Justice League, Justice League of America, well, the JLA Detroit team crossing over into Legends, and they had a couple of Legends crossovers, I think. Or right, yeah, right at the the last four issues. Yes, yeah. it almost lasted three years. If that was today's comics world, Justice League Detroit would have lasted six months. Right. I have to give respect to, to DC for letting it last as long as it did. But a lot of people think that this is a joke team, and when you look at the roster. The core focused on the new members, uh, Vibe, Vixen, Steel, uh, a.k.a. Hank uh, Haywood III, um, I think, and Gypsy. Those were the four new characters that were brought onto the series itself. Um, Yeah, you did have other characters like Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, who was a dick. Um, (laughs) And uh, you also had uh, Zatanna. And, And one thing I didn't know, because I only have, I don't have the complete run. I, there were like a lot of issues missing in the gap because uh, their first regular issue I think was uh, issue 233 and their last issue was 261 and they also had the annual that introduced them um, uh-huh. and I have that annual that annual I bought like an 87 in when Legends came out because I wasn't reading Justice League at the time okay. and I bought that annual and that was that was my first crack at Justice League Detroit. And I had no idea this had gone down because I was reading comics, but I wasn't reading Justice League. I I got Legends for the sole fact that John Byrne was doing the artwork. Oh, right. And you open up that first issue, and there's that double-page spread, and it's Justice League Detroit with Firestorm. I got so excited because I thought that Firestorm was part of this Justice League team, I go to a uh, a comic book and baseball card show in my hometown, and you know nothing but long boxes and baseball cards and football cards everywhere. First one I ever went to, I had a shit fit. 
<laughs> I thought it was the greatest thing on the face of the planet, and it was literally just a small room in a Holiday Inn with a bunch of vendors ripping off kids and adults. And I didn't care. And so I asked the guy, one of the guys that had like all these long boxes, long boxes of comics, I said, I need Justice League of America annual number two. And he had it. I think he sold it to me for two bucks. And even on the cover, there was no Firestorm on it. I bought it anyway, but I was still thinking Firestorm was going to be in the book. But by the time I finished reading it, I didn't care. And I had got a team of you know new heroes. I had old school Justice League members, new school Justice League members, and I thought it was the greatest thing on the face of the planet. And that's when the search began. And I said, I went to the comic book shop and I said, I need Justice League of America. And when I got it, it was the end of the Justice League, the last four issues, which we'll get to later. Um, it was that, and then I was sad. So <laughs> I was sad because I'm like, I, you know, how you go get rid of these dudes when I just started reading it? When was the first time you found Justice League Detroit and what were your feelings about the team when you first saw them? I had already been reading Justice League of America as they were coming out from about issue 210 onward. So we're talking about two years, you know, just shy of two years worth of, of JLA comics that I had already been reading before Detroit came about. Now, that was uh, <clears throat> 82, 83. So I was only, what, 10, 11 mm -hmm. when JLA Detroit actually did come out, uh, you know, in 1984, you know, that. So I was about 11 or 12. So I was already reading the Justice League of America, and Perez at that time was just, um, George Perez, was just finishing up doing mostly the covers by that point. There were some one-off issues here and there, and then there was the two-part JLA-JSA crossover that uh, updated and retcon Black Canary's origin. And then right around that time, Chuck Patton had come onto the book. And I loved his artwork. I, yes. I still love his artwork. I, you know, he's fantastic. He was so clean and kind of reminds me of what uh, sort of what like Tom Grummet does with his art. Um, very clean. It's it's very comic book art, but it's very clean and, and very superhero and just beautiful at that time. You know, I just I really liked his stuff. And uh, Jerry Conway was the writer for a good number of years, even way before the Detroit although he didn't finish the book. He was on the book, and I, did, I wasn't really paying attention to writers, but you you definitely got a sense, once the Martian Invasion story came out before JLA Detroit, right before, it was like three issues right before JLA Detroit, where he brought back Martian Manhunter, there was an Earth-Mars war, uh, the JLA satellite got wrecked, um, and you just got kind of got a sense that it was something was happening, and it was fun and exciting, and uh, you know, pre-internet days, there was no, there weren't many previews that I was uh, exposed to, and then all of a sudden, JLA Annual Two, boom, Aquaman uh, shuts down the team. Uh, you know, everybody leaves, uh, and and we get this whole brand new cast of characters, and I was in it. I loved it. <laughs> I was like, yes, and the cover is gorgeous on that Annual Two. You know, yeah. where they're all standing there, or sitting there on top of like a building, and the the, the other big seven of the JLA is in the background. Yes. It's it's a great cover. I mean, I was hooked. 
as a kid, I was I was in it. I, I I dug it. So I I was there right right as they were putting it out. You talk about Chuck Patton, and Chuck Patton is one of my favorite artists too. And I wonder what Chuck Patton's doing right now. I, I, um, I miss Chuck Patton. Yeah, I think he's actually doing. He's more into the animation side now, and he's either directing or, or you know, uh, working on different projects. I think even like Teen Titans, and uh, there's a, f- a funny story where I think I read this on one of his uh, bios that he, shortly after his JLA run, did some one-offs here and there, uh, but was having trouble finding work and was offered to be one of the artists that would come after Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man, but they wanted him to be like Todd McFarlane. And he said, no, no, thanks. However, years later, years later, he wins an Emmy Award for his work on the Spawn animated series. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a little bit of an interesting twist there. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing that gets me is, as a kid... With Justice League Detroit, and to now, for the longest time, I always thought Chuck Patton had had did at least like twenty or you know twenty of the issues of artwork. Chuck did a majority of the covers, but comic book wise, interior wise for Justice League Detroit, he only did like three or four issues. Yeah, it wasn't much. No, it, it wasn't. But in my mind back then, I thought he was on that book forever. But you know, but he wasn't. But it had like a lot of um. A lot of like talented artists and some and some who you know people will call either B or C list, but I call them like sturdy veterans. Like um, like let's say for instance, you had Chuck Patton, uh, you had uh, Joe Staten, you had uh, George Tuska, right? And one of my favorite artists who gets no love and he's he was always the fill-in guy, Rick Holberg. Oh yeah. Big Rick. Like, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I like Rick. He does. He did a lot of work over at on uh, All Star Squadron as well. Yeah, yeah. That dude gets no love, man. He gets no love, and it hurts my heart because he was just one of those hard workers in comics. You needed somebody to fill in for you. They got Rick Holberg, but they would never give Rick his own series. It used to kill me. <laughs> um, but I think like the artist that stuck with me the most, another person who you haven't seen in a very long time, Luke McDonald. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I hear, you know, the reason I think why they gave people like Joe Stanton and, and George Tuska the fill-in work is they were just quick. I think they were just quick. And the, and their artwork in this, uh, in those random issues that they did, it's it's not their, their, their quality stuff. You know, you could tell they were probably facing deadlines and yeah. stuff. And as a kid... Uh, I didn't appreciate Tuska's work for a long time. It right. just, you know, it kind of felt different and new. Um, but uh, there was this book had a lot of things like that. You know, uh, artists shuffling in and out. You know, DC's going, getting ready to ramp up all the crisis stuff. Um, the uh, characters went in and out. Aquaman went in and out. You know, he was getting that four issue miniseries that would sort of revamp him and give him that camouflage suit. So they had to pull him out. So it felt like the book had some, uh, you know, like it just, it just was going to go, it just was going to be dictated by a lot of other factors. So that, that Conway was able to hold it together for as long as he did uh, was really good. And then your point about Luke McDonald, who would stay on the book for, you know, through up to the end. And then, um, 
he, he really kind of grew on this series into the artist uh, of the book that I really loved when he was on was Suicide Squad. Yeah. Oh, you know, he, he, he used his stuff on Justice League to really hone his work on Suicide Squad. But uh, I dug it. I You know, it was very different than the patent stuff, but I liked it. Yeah, so did I. And and I also think that with, McDon- with McDonald's work on the end of the uh, Justice League run, it also helped um, help change the tone that uh, Jam DeMattis was trying to... Uh, to use for those final four issues because that series went from being like adventurous at times humorous mm-hmm. uh, to something dark yeah yeah and, and and which really caught me off guard yeah after 250 it start well really when they get kicked out of the the bunker in detroit and they go back to the uh the original jla cave headquarters mm-hmm. it does start it does start to get um uh, a little, a little heavy. Uh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. And and certainly by the end of the book, <laughs> by the end, by the end of the run where people are dying left and right, it's really dark. Yeah, yeah, and and that was, and I think that was the first time for me um, as a kid because like eighty seven, yeah, I was I was going, you know, going, you know, about to be twelve years old, and reading those comics at that time, I had I had never really read anything like that before. You know, seeing, I mean, yeah, you know, the stuff with like the, the life and death of Captain Marvel, I had read that as a kid. And yes, you know, a hero dying from cancer. It was, it was, it was shocking, but I don't think it got to me as much as it did to other kids because it was, you know, it's very humanistic. And I'm not saying that like, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. There's not, but it was just, it got me, but it didn't get me the way the death of the Justice League books or the end of the Justice League books got to me. Maybe it was because I had, such strong feelings for the JLA Detroit team. Right. And the fact right. that DC created new heroes and stuck with them and that, you know, Jerry Conway did his best with that team and even bringing characters back because once again, you know, my collective memory thinks it was always Marsha Manhunter, Vibe, Vixen, Steel, and, and Gypsy. But in actuality, Batman showed up for a bit uh-huh. Um, you know, Aquaman, like you said, came back and you know came in and out. There was all the elongated man w- was there, and you know, and Zatanna was there. So, but in my mind, it was always the new members in Martian Manhunter, and I think the reason why it's always stuck in my head that way was due to the last four issues of that series before it became it, before it turned into the Bwahaha era. Right. That's you right. know that's how how much those last four issues still stick with me to this day. I'm still amazed at the fact that, well, I was pissed when they killed off Vibe. I was pissed when I was a kid. <laughs> when, I, when I got older, when I got older, I was like, man, I'm glad they killed him. But now going back, going back and looking at that again, I got pissed again. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's back now, which which is cool. You know, I'm glad he's back. And I'm not really sure how DC Comics is using him now on the animated side of things. The vibe animated shorts are hilarious. Yeah. But there's just something about that character. When I was younger, you know, when I was in my mid 20s, I thought he was offensive. And I remember you talking to me, I think, on a forum board about this. And you said that the character of vibe back then wasn't offensive. Well. He wasn't offensive to me. Okay. Let me let me put it that way. Gotcha. I'm not sure if that's how I explained it. And you know, the the character vibe in this book um, is certainly uh, 
Conway or DC's uh, attempt to diversify things a little bit. I mean, you can't fault them for that, especially yeah. in the 80s when, um, you know, I, I always say that even though I'm Puerto Rican, I, it's not like I really grew up in in um, it's not like I grew up with the Puerto Rican culture sort of constantly around me other than just being Puerto Rican. Right. Right. And. Uh, you know, my grandparents, they spoke Spanish, but they also spoke English. My family, uh, my older siblings spoke Spanish, but um, not we, it wasn't our first language. You know, it was we were my mom and my family had been in the States for a number of decades before I was born. So it was it wasn't like I was truly, truly immersed in in that culture. You know, we were very Americanized or whatever. So and there's totally nothing wrong with that. But in the 80s everywhere in media i think they were starting to really hone in on the latino demographic uh i always point to the rubik's cube cartoon that featured uh an hispanic family yep. um whatever that i forget what it's called like rubik's the amazing cube or something like that yes you know think of other sitcoms you know that would introduce a spanish character or movies you know and then this whole breakdancing thing i mean that was huge breakdancing was huge in those days and uh you know yeah you you can laugh about uh break in and break into electric boogaloo but i mean if you lived in a major city that was going on that was going on in my junior high days before and after school people would whip out the cardboard and start dancing and i don't even live in i mean reading is when I, where we grew up uh, where I grew up in Reading, it, it does have a, a large Hispanic community, but my school wasn't all Spanish. It was a nice mix. So when I see a character like Vibe and, you, you know, people like George Perez really thought he was a stereotype and offensive. And I know I read Chuck Patton wasn't too, too keen on the character. Um, I looked at him and said, yeah, I have cousins like that. I have cousins that have that stupid little soul patch, and I have cousins that wear baggy pants and hair that looks like El DeBarge. And I, you know, I have cousins who break dance and who talk like that. And there is very much a real thing like uh, that bravado that vibe has, mm -hmm. that macho Spanish bravado, big family. You talk one way when you're with your friends. You talk another way when when you're with your family. I mean that that's not fake. You know the no. reason is the reason stereotypes exist sometimes is because they're true, in in, in that sense. And so sure, was it heavy handed? Probably, but I didn't think it was that far off the mark. Especially because I could point to about. 10 to 15 people, most of my family, who were very much like Vibe. In fact, the only thing I think I, I take, take offense to is, is his name, you know, Paco. Paco. Paco Ramon sounds more Mexican to me than Puerto Rican, but, right. you know, whatever. I, I forgot his name was Paco Ramon. <laughs> yeah, Paco, Paco Ramon. <laughs> oh. I lo look, I loved Vibe. I, I thought he was a fantastic character just because I, it wasn't like one of those that I was suddenly like, yes, I have a voice in comics. I, n I never really was like that, you know, but I liked it because it was different and he didn't have. He could have had a, a far stupider power, you know. He had a pretty interesting, uh, if not uh, or ordinary power. Right. And uh, uh, he was kind of like the JLA Detroit's version of um, Firestorm in terms of youth, but then Green Arrow in terms of getting under people's skin. Right. You know, so to the point where in 
in the third annual where um, it was the crisis annual, uh, he actually gets punched out by Green Arrow. He gets decked by Green Arrow because <laughs> I forget. I think they were talking about Red Tornado, uh, who had been destroyed, and Paco was being his usual uh, self, and Green Arrow like decked him for it, <laughs> Make, making a joke at Red Tornado's expense. But anyway, all to say that you know, at the time, yes, I think Vibe's legacy is far more. I think people. I think people know of Vibe. But have not really read the character, and certainly in in you know twenty some years later, if you read it, you're gonna go, yeah, that's a crazy stereotyped character. But at the time, I didn't mind it at all. I remember while trying to find issues from the Justice League Detroit run, I did have friends. In my, in my hometown that were into comics too not as much as me but they were still into them and when they saw the justice league team and they read a couple issues with vibe they thought that vibe was like the scrappy do of the team and i'm like come on man he's not that bad seriously he is not that bad he's like no he's the scrappy dude he's annoying i'm like he's not that annoying yeah he says some things that might work your nerves but he is valuable to the team i think another thing that really that i had never really seen before like um vixen i i never knew of vixen before justice league detroit and i know she had other appearances way before justice league detroit but Mm -hmm. her being on the team for me was a really big deal a very very big deal for me because um you know one i never knew of the character two i thought the character was interesting and three she could hold a conversation with martian manhunter and and intellectually go toe to toe with him, you right. know, you know. And I used to love that as a kid. I loved it. Um, and plus, she was also fierce. And and once again, I would get in arguments with my friends because they didn't know who Vixen was, and they're like, "Why does she have a Wolverine haircut?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Shut up! <laughs> it's not about that. It's not about that at all. Go find out what her character does. She can, you know, pick up all these animal powers, do all these great things. Quit just looking." at the outside of the character look at the character as a whole i just think they just like to fuck with me because i love comic books so much (laughs) but vixen was a very interesting character for me and not only that i remember when we got to the last four issues of justice of the justice league of um, justice league detroit i honestly thought they were going to kill her character off oh wow i I really did i was just like because even as even as a child you know, I always knew that black folks didn't make it long in movies unless we were the, unless we were the lead actor or actress or, or TV shows. And I figured, well, she's not going to make it. When they killed Vibe, I was like, I was sad, but I was like, well, he was a minority. So I expected him to be killed. <laughs> and I mean, and I don't say it to be mean. It's just that was the way of the world when it came to yeah. entertainment. Yeah. And when they put in like Steel, which I'll get to in a moment. When you know they they t- they took Steele's character, pretty much killed him, put him on life support to only have his grandfather say, "Look, he's not going to make it," and pull the plug. I, I was shocked. I was like, "They actually killed this dude." I was shocked to no end. Um, but I really thought that Vixen wasn't going to make it. But in the end, she ended up being the strongest character of the bunch, you know, with the exception of Martian Manhunter. Yeah, this. I mean, and it's no strange. It, it it's it's not strange that she's on the book because Jerry Conway co-created her, and you're right. She was only in a very few appearances. 
Um, I remember her from a DC Comics Presents issue with Superman, and she had a funky blue and yellow costume, and <laughs> and then she showed up in this, and you know, it's another um, character that uh, Chuck Patton redesigned for this book. Uh, and her, I loved her costume in this series. Yes. I loved her presence. She was conflicted, you know, as a, as a between her superheroics and and sometimes, you know, there's a storyline with uh, I think it's her uncle, uh, who who's a who's a despot basically, and you know she's she's conflicted with her duties as a JLA member, but what she feels is right, and and this series went really far to. Um, I think it did a couple of things for a lot of different characters, but Vixen especially. It really brought her to the forefront of of the DC universe by giving her exposure. And exposure that would then go on to Suicide Squad um, and, and for a number of years in that book. And then she drifted away a little bit here and there, but then was brought back again, you know, in the Brad Meltzer run right. of, of Justice League. So her, you know, she's certainly not an A-list character, but without the JLA Detroit, you certainly wouldn't have seen her. I don't think you would have seen her as prominently in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon uh, because she, you know, this was the stuff that made her who she was. And along with that, just as a tangent, you know, Marsh, bringing back Martian Manhunter into the book was huge you know because then he would be on every jla team after this yes and uh and i also think it was the book that uh started the the approach to aquaman that most people think peter david really did you know like this sort of aggressive rough um badass aquaman but really it was already starting to happen back here in the jla detroit years mm -hmm. uh, so those three characters i think really benefited from the book um in terms of elevating them uh, beyond just sort of simple background characters and for the very simple fact and i'm i'm trying to look it up but i'm very certain that vixen i mean she was she's she's actually african she was born in africa right but she's the first black character on the justice league of america yeah that's huge. That, that's really huge, and and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't really pay attention to that, you right. know, because the team was pretty much all white folks from the beginning uh, up until nineteen, you know, October nineteen eighty four. Right. You know, that's that's crazy. Yeah. That, like I know me and my me and my friends, we joked all the time that Martian Manhunter was the substitute black dude. <laughs> You know what I mean? And then when the Justice League cartoon came out, Carl Lumbly did the voice of Martian Manhunter, to which now that we're all older, me and my friend still joke. He's like, told you it's the black dude. Oh. <laughs> you know, you know, we always joked about that stuff. But but, you know, but in all seriousness, you're right. It was a very big deal. It was an extremely big deal yeah. when Vixen was put on the team. But, yeah, she's a minor character to compare to, you know, a Green Lantern, a Superman, a Wonder Woman, Batman, Flash. But still it was still a big deal to me um right it's a very very big deal to me it was just something that was to me it was just like wow i because i never thought i would see that happen and when it happened and the fact that she stayed on the team from you know that whole time just amazed me to no end yeah i think they i think the creators really knew and i was i was reading the back uh the back page the, the of uh justice league america annual two by writer um sorry by editor alan gold and and you know they talked about he talks back about you know really shaking things up using the second stringers more than than 
seeing if a book could exist without any of the big seven um, using second stringers, wondering if they really were going to last. I mean, even back then, you know, I, I think they knew they were taking a chance yeah. uh, on the book and, and doing this. And and sure, it, it turned out the way it did. Uh, uh, but I, I think they had to take that chance. I mean, if they wouldn't, I don't know. It, it's kind of interesting. You know, a lot of times people say that um, DC and before the crisis, DC didn't do multi-part stories and they didn't have ongoing plots and things like that which is just untrue it really is untrue uh, across many 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 titles you know firestorm certainly was one that had a long storyline um another jerry conway book justice league during the justice league it was during the detroit era that it really started to feel like a book that existed issue to issue as opposed to single issues um Certainly, New Teen Titans, Legion of Superheroes, all, a lot of titles before Crisis were, were doing multi-part or continuing stories. Maybe they weren't all doing, you know, like Dark Phoenix sagas or or things like that. But um, they were they were really making it a consistent, trying to make consistent stories, and and that was that was that felt cool with the Justice League Detroit that. This was a team that you're reading their adventures, but they don't feel like random one-offs. It doesn't feel like, you know, prior to this, when I was reading Justice League, it felt like between the issue or two issues of a story, it felt like something was happening that I didn't know about, right? Like you had to go and 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 say, oh, well, obviously they had other adventures as a team or a solo, and now I'm back again for this particular adventure. It really felt sort of chopped up, right. you know? But uh, no, the book, the book, uh, the book did a, a bunch of things that I think was new for DC at that time. Through this uh, Justice League uh, Detroit run, what would you say is your favorite issue of the bunch? Uh <laughs> that's hard i have them all here i like pulled them all out of the bag and board oh, man. and i just have them all here i'm gonna flip through it real quick at the covers let me see i it's gonna probably sound what i got a few if i can cheat yeah, i got a yeah, few well, go ahead go ahead and cheat go ahead go ahead all right the first one this is totally random by the way i, I checked my facts it wasn't chuck Patton was gonna follow todd mcfarlane on the incredible hulk oh. not amazing spider-man okay so, my bad um the this is just a silly my one of my favorite issues is 243 it's a cover with amazo holding the jla in his hands and aquaman and mira are are jumping at amazo yes um be, the, and the only reason is because if you look in the letter column title they don't have the letter column page they don't have my letter but they have my name in it <laughs> so that's cool Very that was cool. the <laughs> I, I have to say probably the annual number two that introduced them is my favorite. Um, I love the cover. It was one of the first annuals I ever got. It was, it, it had a lot at the end of the justice league. It's pretty important in terms of justice league history. Um, them going against the UN, uh, going up in front of the UN saying that they're disbanding people yelling at Aquaman. How could he do this? Um, and Aquaman basically saying, uh, you know, look, our team hasn't been a team. Where's Green? A- where's Green Lantern? You know, at this time in the Green Lantern books, he was exiled into space, 
and we're Superman and Batman was with Batman and the Outsiders, you yes. know, so so they were using continuity and really. Um, oh, and Adam was in the uh, jungles of South America. Yes. So they were using the continuity to really establish this book. And he said, you know, Aquaman says, look, if you want to be part of the JLA, you have to commit 100 percent. And most of them say no. And then a few surprise him and say, sure, let's do it. And and that's where you get the second stringers as the core before they start introducing the new team. So I love the first issue. It's, it was really just fun and exciting and it just felt like something new that I could jump into because I was there from the beginning. So I, I, I'll have to cheat and say that that's my favorite. One of my favorites, uh, so much so that I've actually had to buy it four times. <laughs> because like as a kid, I read it from front to back, front to back, look at, looked at the artwork, read the story again and again and again until the pages fell off, fell out. Justice League, um, Justice League Annual number three, the crisis tie-in. Yes. I got Rick Holberg art, which made me very happy. It's got a Paris Collins co- cover. I miss Paris Collins, dude. Oh, come on, Blue Beetle. Yes, Blue Devil. Oh, dude, man, I miss him, man. Miss the Forever that, People. Yes, the the only reason he was the only reason I bought that Forever People book. <laughs> and and I now and I've got a better appreciation for Forever People and Fourth World Kirby concepts now than I did when I was a kid. But mm-hmm. when I knew that Collins was on that book, you sure as hell knew I went to the comic book store and said, "Put that in my hold list." Nice. Oh I, man, I miss that. But I miss I, I really miss his artwork. But I, I think what got me most about. Uh, this, this annual and this issue of of Justice League was the fact that yeah I got the Justice League Detroit team I also got you know Green Arrow Black Canary uh, appearance by Firestorm um, like you had a, sh- a small appearance by like a Superman or Batman a couple of the Outsiders but it was about Red Tornado mm-hmm. and how he had became had how he had become basically a force of nature and Red Tornado was one of my favorite characters ever. He's he's like my second superpowers action figure I ever had. Oh wow! Yeah, and I and I always loved that design. I thought I thought Red Tornado's design was always just so freaking cool. And then when he got jacked up in Crisis, I got mad. Oh, I was furious, furious. I'm like, why do people keep fucking with my heroes? And it really just pulled me in. And there was a lot of emotional content to it. And yeah, Green Arrow did punch Vibe in the face. And, you know, you had some moments like that, but it was just a very, you know, compelling and emotional story that I just couldn't get enough of. And that honestly, in turn, made me like the Crisis miniseries even more. And the thing is, it's not that that I didn't like Crisis. I love Crisis. You know, where where else can you get, you know, Perez, 12 issues of Perez art and like him drawing as many characters as possible in panels. It, it it was amazing, but that annual, you know, pulled me in and made me go reread Crisis again and again and again because I never read all this stuff when it came out. I was right. all, when it came to DC Comics, I was always, with the exception of Legends. By the time Legends came out, I had found a comic book store. I found out what a pull list was. That's mm-hmm. when I started getting DC books on a monthly basis before that it was all it was like you know being an explorer being like indiana jones and just finding treasure and right and stuff like that it was just a new world to me and then they had this brother by the name of dale gunn yeah 
<laughs> you, you know, and, and I like I said, I don't have, I think I only have, I have, honestly, I probably say 30 or 40% of the Justice League Detroit run. So, and a lot of those issues, Dale Gunn isn't that big of a character in them, or he's barely in them. So, mm-hmm. I really don't know of, of Dale Gunn's importance to the series. Can you possibly elaborate on that for me? Well, there's a couple things about Dale Gunn. First, that, uh, for those people who don't know, he's um, he was... Uh, kind of like a mentor or a friend to the new the new character Steel, uh, and I say uh, new, but for those people who don't know, Steel in the JLA Detroit is as as Sean said, he's the grandson of a Golden Age superhero character called Commander Steel, who only really started to exist uh, as a character in the Bronze Age of the DC Universe. As a you know, that's where they published it, and. Dale Gunn was part of uh, Steel's sort of backstory, the new character of Steel. And uh, he, uh, by the way, Steel also was created by Jerry Conway as well, the older Steel. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was He was in a, he was, the, the grandfather was in, it was Steel the in- Indestructible Man from 1978. And it was Jerry Conway and Don Heck. So, of course, when he's bringing back, you know, when he's creating this JLA Detroit, he's like, look, I'll bring in Vixen. I co-created her and I'm going to create a whole new character called Steel, who's the grandson of a Golden Age character. And Dale, you know, was uh, in charge of the bunker that they would be in in, in Detroit. And he was your uh, hmm, trying to think of a parallel, not not like a Steve Trevor, but he was, uh, you know, like a behind the scenes kind of man, you know, mm-hmm. and uh uh, there's there's a precedence or there's there's some speculation that Chuck Patton probably drew him to look like himself, uh, much in the way that in over in the New Teen Titans the character of Terry Long, which is Donna Troy's husband, Wonder Girl's husband. Yeah. Many people believe that Terry Long was drawn to look kind of like Marv Wolfman, and it's it's kind of like a writer sticking himself into a book. And we think that there's some speculation that maybe that's what Chuck Patton was doing with Dale Gunn was that he was making him putting him in the book. And then that's why Dale Gunn was having like these flirtatious room, you know, scenes with Zatanna and Vixen. He was like he was trying to mack on both of them. But he's he was a good character. He was kind of like a, a point man, a point of view type character. Uh, he would ask questions and he would be the 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 one that the readers could sort of maybe go through to get to the JLA, you know, because he would ask the same questions that the reader might ask. Uh, he would stand up against Aquaman every now and then. And uh, he's an interesting character. I mean, it it it, uh, it certainly didn't detract from the book. And uh, it, it was a long time, I think, until they, they brought him back again. Um, not quite sure what happened to him, if he if he died at some point or what, but one of those DC characters that I think could pop up at any point. Well, maybe not in these days, but he felt like he could be a supporting character that could pop up uh, with with some technical expertise. I had no idea until you just told me that Chuck Patton is a black man. Yeah. No idea. Yes, he is. None whatsoever. I have learned something new today, and and my soul is just like it, it warms my soul. <laughs> that is so fucking awesome. Had no idea. Do you remember the DC Challenge maxi series? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. He's in that actually. You know how they they would pass off each issue to the next creative team? Right. 
and and he's in that like he draws himself uh, uh, looking at the script with a writer i forget with who the writer is and uh, you can see he's very clearly uh he's got he's he's got the same sort of look that dale gunn has with the the full beard and the mustache and uh i don't not balding head but you know it's not a lot of hair up there though but he looks like a good looking dude like and he's right there and he's he's in uh i think it's issue two of dc challenge i'm gonna have to go back and see if i have any uh mycomicshop.com credit and uh, see if i can purchase those uh dc challenge issues nice (laughs) (laughs) i think i I think i got i think i have uh 36 bucks left in credit so so i should be able to pull those off dude I, I traded in a bunch of books for credit like years ago, and mm-hmm. I, I had a few hundred dollars in there. And and over the years, like I've bought so many, I just like bought so many books on credit and finding sales through them. I have boxes of. See, I should be ashamed of myself for the simple fact that I still have other books that I haven't had time to read yet, but I keep buying books because oh, I got store credit. Let's buy some more books. <laughs> I have a problem, Peter. I have a I problem. Think- I think we all do. <laughs> I'm staring at, you know, right before we recorded, I was with my, my, my girlfriend and she, uh, you know, we, I have all my boxes in my room, you know, and they, uh, they're, they're stored nicely against the one wall. But I remember the first time she came in there, came in and she said, what are all those? <laughs> I, you know how many times I've had to explain that to somebody coming in here? What are all those? Mm-hmm. It's like. I should just I should just have a plaque up there and say these are my books. <laughs> but I mean this is like this is the great thing about comics. This is I just I just lo- you know I love them and and JLA like I said JLA Detroit coming back around to it. That was the book. That was one of the few books that made me love comics because there was just it, it wasn't just campy corny stuff it, right. it really wasn't it really wasn't campy corny stuff like you had seen in like in previous justice league books and i'm not saying that stuff was bad because it, it's not i've read i went back and i read some of those and i and i love those stories too but i like the fact that you know that you know this you know this book used b you know b c and d listers and made sufficient stories made really good stories to the point where i think after the day uh, the uh, jm uh, the day mateus and giffen run ended and when justice league was really justice league was trying to find its identity because at that time you had justice league america uh, justice league europe justice league task force uh-huh. you had all these different justice league books and none of them really had an identity and they would use all they would and they would try to kind of like recapture that magic of using b listers c listers z listers and that magic can never be reattained you know what i mean yeah yeah it, it just it, it didn't feel right and like i'm all for you know books using lower tier characters that eventually can develop and mature into a big name character that can that can carry their own weight i think justice league detroit did that these those other justice league books couldn't do that so much so that they had to just start all over and then you got the morrison run right yeah i think some of it is is uh, you know when you talk about the Bwahaha era, which is one of my favorite eras, you know, still. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm, I would never put it down. But that's a long time. I mean, those books were were uh, really... The driving force was the humor for a long time. And 
when we when people say, "Oh, the Bwahaha era," most of the times they they pretty much are only really thinking about like the first two years of Justice League and Justice League International, mm-hmm. and then uh, Justice League Europe when that started. I mean, the entire run of all of that is is fun and funny. But it's really the first two, maybe two and a half years that are the the, the cream of the crop uh, in terms of, of, of that wahaha ness And then after that, it starts to get a little diluted, um, and it becomes – some of the stories become jokes just for joke's sakes. Right. And – and that's rough, you know, that's tough. The the closest thing I can sort of say to what JLA Detroit is in in, in terms of using the second stringers is when James Robinson was writing the Justice League of America with people like Dick Grayson and Wonder Girl and Congorilla mm-hmm. and Supergirl and uh, you know, Jade and all. so and there weren't a lot of people that liked those cast of characters and those stories were kind of up and down. However, uh had JLA Detroit been around today, yeah, it probably would have garnered the same amount of um, response, you know, sort of negative response. But back then, we didn't have the internet, and as silly as the characters were, the book still was really popular. Uh, People were reading it, and uh, yes, eventually it would, 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 there would be a change in the air, but those two books sort of those two runs are kind of parallel in terms of a bunch of second stringers uh some of them liked some of them not liked uh half people liking it half not but i think i i actually really do think that the detroit era was probably a little more popular mm-hmm. and, and and a little more success, successful uh so as in terms you're right in terms of identity what we know of Detroit is mostly because of people not reading it, but just sort of going, oh, that's that crazy era with with Vibe and Gypsy. Right. But but there's some really standout moments. Uh, I have a list of stuff that I don't if, if I can just go through it. Oh, please, please do. Please do. Please. I think these are in terms of how important it is to the Justice League uh, chronology. Right. Like, you know, pre DC 52. This era actually had a few things here and there that that kind of were very important. First, all right. So first, two twenty eight, two twenty nine, and two thirty. It's the Martian War. It's it brought back Martian Manhunter, uh, one of the original seven of the Justice League at this time. Um, it destroyed the JLA satellite, which was huge mm-hmm. to me anyway. I was yes. like, whoa, <laughs> what? This what? That that to me, ah, that was that was awesome. So you had that. Then you had, all right, so JLA Detroit. We already talked about kind of Vixen, Aquaman, and Martian Manhunter really being brought to the forefront. I think it also kind of did the same for Elongated Man, too. Uh, You know, he wasn't just a a background, goofy character. Uh, He would be part of, what, I think Justice League Europe after this. Mm -hmm. um, It created a little bit of history with Steel, a connection to the Golden Age and the JSA, which was awesome. First black character with Vixen. Uh, so you had that, um, there's an awesome scene in the first four part story with them when they're fighting the cadre and yes. the overmaster where one of the characters, one of the villains, it's kind of lame. His name is crowbar. He throws <laughs> his, his magical empowered crowbar at the team and the entire team like ducks, except for Aquaman. He just grabs it right out of midair and throws it right back at him. And you're like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so cool. They even say here, it says, uh, muscles born 
to withstand the pressures of the ocean deep move with lightning speed and thin surface air. And he just yanks it right out of the air and just says, no, no way. Look at this. Boom. Right back at him. <laughs> That's, I just thought that was so that was such a like, fuck, yeah, moment for him. <sighs> and I think they did a lot to explore his character, his his powers um, like with that and and. He would. I don't think he did a lot of it afterwards, but he would even sort of tinker with people's minds a little bit uh, with his telepathic abilities, uh, and and he was just a badass in this. So uh, this really, for me, was the series that made me think, oh, Aquaman could be cool. Then they moved into the the, the JLA headquarters, and because Aquaman left. Martian Manhunter actually stepped into the kind of like a secondary leadership role with Batman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, you know, they brought in Batman, I'm I'm, I'm thinking, for sales. But, right, right. But Martian Manhunter starts to get a lot of play. And think of, of you know, he would stick around for years after this. He, he, was, he was gone before he came back in JLA Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, he would stick around through the Bwahaha era, Task Force. He'd get, he would get his own series uh, in Morrison's run, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that was really important for that character. And I love the Despero storyline right out of issue 250. See, I'm salty because though I don't have those issues, dude. Oh, yeah, you need to read them. They're pretty, they're pretty good. They bring back one of the oldest JLA villains, and they make him into uh, even, even, even a harsher villain than he was. And uh, it's, it's good. It's a good story. And, and uh, I remember reading it going, whoa, this is, this is where the book sort of switches for me from something – kind of light and adventurous like you say and and getting a little heavy you know a little dark real real like 80s superhero drama mm. uh so i so i really dug that and then after that there's a few one-offs until they get to the end of justice league and obviously by that time uh you know it's going to morph into the book that we know as the Bahaha era um but you know you also had luke mcdonald which i think this book because he was over on what Iron Man, I think before this. Yes, yes, he was. Yeah. He was the Iron Man artist for a while on that right. book. My one of my favorite runs. Yes. Yeah, and but I think it was this book that probably elevated him a little bit, and certainly with DC, they were like, "Yes, let's give him Suicide Squad," which was a huge book in the eighties. Yes, it was. Uh, you know that book really uh, was a standout thing. So, um, you know, for his cat, for his time in comics i think that probably was a really important time for him you know it's funny how you were talking about all the justice league teams and how they try to you know revitalize teams using minor characters but it didn't have that same appeal as with justice league detroit remember during zero hour when they try to do that, you know, they try to, you know, capture that lightning in a bottle with a lot of minor characters and it didn't work. Right. Um, it was, and, and, and it hurt my heart. It really, it hurt my heart for the simple fact Wonder Woman was the leader of the team. She's one of my favorite characters of oh, all time. Oh, yeah. Is Wonder Woman, Flash, Crimson Fox, Metamorpho, Nuclon, Fire, and the Zero Hour Hawkman, which is basically all the different versions of Hawkman pushed into one. Right, right. Oh, dude, it's <laughs> it's just not good. Yeah, it, it hurt my heart. It, it really <laughs> did. It hurt. And I, oh, and Obsidian was on the team too. I I wanted that book to work so bad. 
and it just did not do it. So once again, let me just go back to JLA Detroit, and I, and I can read these and, and, and you know and enjoy myself. But yeah, it hurt my soul to no wow. end. But um, but no, you you know you're absolutely right. They DC really did give Luke McDonald a chance to really shine, and that's not undermining his work on Iron Man. Which no. during that time, also once again for me, um, you know, just to go on a side tangent, it was a big deal because McDonald basically did a majority of the roadie run, right, right, and and once again, you know, from Secret Wars and after Secret Wars, roadie was Iron Man for a long fucking time, yeah, and that to me, and once again as a kid, was amazing. Yeah, they, you know the character was written kind of off key at times, but you know, but then they said there was something in his head, la da 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 da, whatever. But still, it was a really big deal. And and then you know you got the the move from Luke McDonald, who then went to DC to Mark Bright, another underrated artist in my opinion. Oh yeah, um, yeah. See, that's why I think I loved Iron Man so much um, during that period of time, and I, he's still one of my favorite characters ever. Even though I will admit. I probably haven't consistently read an Iron Man book probably in 15 years. Um, but I remember from the 80s, I went from Bob Layton to Luke McDonald to Mark Bright to um, back to Bob Layton, John Byrne. Wow. Um, you know, I, you, I remember that. That, I mean, to this day, I, I can't forget that stuff. But, like, if you tell me now, hey, go read this Iron Man book with, with uh, LaRocca art, I'll say no thank you. Huh. And I don't, and I don't mean that to be condescending towards Larocca, because I know a lot of people give Larocca shit, and and some of it might be just cause. It doesn't appeal to me, and I and I'm a I'm a Matt Fraction. I, I like Matt Fraction's writing, but it just doesn't appeal to me. And I've honestly, I've given I've given the books chances. I've bought trades. I've borrowed books from the library. No appeal, none whatsoever. Yeah. I know. I, I'm with you on that. I think it's too. I think he's he's too heavy-handed with his references. Uh, instead of him using it as a starting point, he uses it somewhat too much as an end point, and I'm not really a fan of that. And you know, I remember Larocca with Extreme X Men, mm-hmm. which I thought I thought actually was his artwork, and that was really good. Yeah. You know, it was, you know, I, I really enjoyed his stuff at that on that. But you know, I, I agree with you. Well, and, and I think that was also during a period of time, as far as going back to Justice League Detroit, in that era of comic books, the writing had to be just as good or as great as the art. Mm-hmm. And they had and like you, they had to mesh together. You know what I mean? The writing had to be just as good as the art. The art had to be just as good as the writing. And it, and it made for this good mesh. And then we got to this era of comics where the art overpowered the actual story. And so then story didn't really matter as long as the art looked great. And then that changed the way of storytelling. And then we went back to story over art. And in some and like I sometimes I still think we're trying to find that medium in comic storytelling nowadays. Uh, you right. know, that that nice balance. And to me, once again, Justice League Detroit had that. I know some people might say, you know, well the art wasn't all that, but to me they always balanced each other out. They always did. Even the stuff like you said kind of looked rushed. It still found a way to balance itself out from beginning to end, and yeah. um, and I think that's that's something that a lot of comics today are missing because um, we all fell into that trap in the '90s. Uh, and and there and, and like and I don't know a lot of people give '90 books shit, but there are a lot of great books that came out in the '90s too. But there were a lot of books where, dude, it's literally it's just an art portfolio. 
there's, you can tell there's, they're they're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna make a lot of money on the original pages on this. One. <laughs> yes, yeah, but but that I mean that was the era, that was the time, and then the market imploded, but yeah. um, imploded on itself. But no, it just. Just, but once again, going back to Justice League Detroit, that was one of the happiest times in my life reading comic books and it being that gateway for me to actually explore DC Comics. Because if it wasn't for Justice League Detroit, I wouldn't have gone back and bought Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, and if it wasn't, for, I mean, I had to piecemeal that puppy. I mean, I had to search for each issue of Crisis. Oh, yeah. And, you know, whether it be like if, uh, if issue one was a actual direct market version, issue two was a grocery store uh, version, you know, right. so, so forth and so forth and so forth. I had to piecemeal that fucker together. <laughs> and that took like six months. And if it wasn't for Justice League Detroit, I would have never bought Who's Who, which is still to this day. Oh, yeah. One of the greatest, greatest book collection of like art, DC Comics history and like technical stuff ever. Fucking love Who's Who. I think I'm three issues away from having the complete run of the original Who's Who. And oh, you'll have to send send me a list of what those three are because I have doubles of a lot of those. Oh, for real? Yeah. Yep. Writing that down right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> who's Who was one of the greatest things in my. Is another one of those great things in my childhood. Like going through between, you know, Who's Who and uh, Marvel's official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Uh-huh. Those two things, if you, if during my childhood, if you gave me those issues for Christmas, you were like my favorite friend or relative in the history of Christmases. Because it was, it was just that, it was that book. You could just like know everything about a character, and you would see all these different renditions of characters from different artists, and it just it was incredible to me. You know, where, where else could you get a book with Who's Who where you could get Jack Kirby, John Byrne, um, you know, George Perez. I, I mean, all these artists, one book. And, and there's a lot of people in there that I flip through now and I'm like, what? Like, like Dave Stevens is in there. Yes. And, and, uh, um, oh, who's the, uh. I think uh, I think one of the Hernandez brothers is in there, and Matt Wagner has work in there. These really they pulled in a lot of like indie talents at, at that time. Yeah, dude. Uh, Eric Schanauer, I think has uh, an entry or two, and yeah, that book you flip through and you go through some of the names, and you're like, what, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 you know you know I love me some who's who. Yeah, man. Who's, it was for me. It was who's who, and I loved I liked who's who for a number of reasons. You know, I liked I liked the Oh, hot move books, the Marvel handbooks, because they their history was far more detailed. But I liked the Who's Who because they included logo designs, and their pictures were more. Their the artwork was more of a pinup as opposed to just sort of like a static standing image. So I, I liked that, even though I think the the handbooks are a little bit more informative. So those two books, I also liked, um, obviously, History of the DC Universe, which was huge. Um, but do you remember Marvel Saga? Oh, dude. Oh, come on now. That was that shit was awesome. That was great. I, lo- I was so disappointed that they only got up to, what, like 25 issues, maybe up around like where Galactus first comes to the Earth or something. Mm-hmm. But the way they were connecting the Marvel Universe and using uh, different panels from from current comics... Uh, 
older comics, like retro origins, retroactive origins, things like that. I, I loved that book. I thought it was such a an interesting creative idea that even though it lasted 25 issues, it, it, it sort of by the end was starting to get a little bit too intricate trying to trying to detail almost every single adventure of every Marvel character as opposed to hitting the highlights. But man, what an interesting... I, I really dug that series. It, it, it was... It it was like the between like Marvel Saga and DC's uh, the history of the DC universe that two issue special format uh, mini mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then, yeah and they then they retcon some stuff on both of them both oh, sure. you know both of those books were fantastic like the DC uh, the history of the DC universe was cool because it was essentially Perez art and. Right. And and the thing you know, there's a lot of you know sp- you know spreads and all this other stuff, fancy stuff in it. But I always wish that the history of the DC universe was like Marvel Saga because when I got the history of the DC universe, I loved it so much. I just wanted to know more in between the pages. I right. I, I had I, I needed to know. I I just had to know. And with Saga, I got that. And and once again, you got to see art from Kirby, Ditko, um, you name it. It was yeah. in there, and yeah. I mean, and that's that's not only, you know, that's that's history right there. Yeah. It's it's history, and and I and I can't stress enough to people. It's like with anything, you, you know, you should try to know the history behind these things that are created because it will give you a better appreciation for the medium of comics and the medium of art itself. And they were great books, and I. You know, and I, and I wish they bring that stuff back. And sometimes Marvel does with those special, like little free comics they'll do. Mm-hmm. But oh, the sagas, yeah, yeah, and they'll do that just as a way to get everybody caught up before before a new series that they're either rebooting or relaunching or whatever. Right. And and those are kind of cool. Those are kind of cool, but it it doesn't have the same. Um, to me, it doesn't have the same strong effect that Marvel Saga had. Right. And that was something that. You know, they could, you could do that with Marvel because, uh, you know, in the 80s, it was only, what, 25 years old. Mm-hmm. The Marvel Universe was, was only having their 25th anniversary. So you could go back and really look at the, how, they, how they grew, not only as a publisher, but how their continuity grew. Obviously, with DC, it's a little bit harder. It's a lot harder. But yeah. uh, that, I did like that about that book. And um, I think it's interesting when you were talking about Luke McDonald and Iron Man and, it made me think of Marvel in the 80s, and I think some of the reason, because I was collecting everything in the 80s. People people know me as a DC guy, but I was, in the 80s, it didn't matter. Comics were comics, and uh, it really wasn't until maybe the 90s and, and early 2000s that I started to prefer, or that I started to really uh, have a, a shift where I was getting more DC than Marvel. But that at that time, I was getting... A ton of Marvel titles, you know, anything from X Men on down to Conan to Dakota North to uh, you know all the four issue miniseries they were putting out. I mean, I was I was huge into Marvel, and what made me what made me you were talking, and it kind of made me think the reason maybe this is also the reason why I like JLA Detroit. You know, for Marvel in the eighties, I was reading a lot of the a lot of the books were focusing on not the original characters, but either their replacements or secondary uh, teams. Mm-hmm. So maybe this is why I don't really have an appreciation for 
Tony Stark Iron Man because the Iron Man I read was Rhodey. That was the you know that was the era of the comics that I was reading for Iron Man, and even though I was reading Avengers, when that four issue West Coast Avengers miniseries came out, I was on that. I loved that book. <laughs> you're talking to you once again, dude. You're talking to somebody that has owned three to five copies of the first issue. Yeah, see, and then look at and Fantastic Four. My Fantastic Four doesn't have the thing in it. It has She Hulk in it. Mm-hmm. You know, and X Men. Uh, I read about maybe two years worth of X-Men and then Magneto becomes the leader. You know, so when I think of my Marvel reading in the eighties, uh, it's not focused on the primary people that we well look at Spider-Man. Yeah. It's a black and white costume. When I was reading Spider-Man in the eighties, that was the first issue I picked up was amazing Spider-Man 252. My first Spider-Man issue, probably because he had that black costume on. Uh, and I was, you know, and I knew secret War was coming. So it's kind of interesting to think that, that, uh, you know, I, I think that's probably why I have an affinity for books like JLA Detroit as well, because, and it's certainly the reason why I loved when DC did uh, the week long, the weekly series Fifty Two, because mm-hmm. it was about other characters than the than the Big Seven, and it was about the larger DC universe, and um, I appreciate that about books. Yeah, the, the the fact that in those books change was accepted. And right. it, it was accepted, and it and, and it was a risk. It, it was a risk to do that. And even back then, when books were selling, when an average title sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and was still considered to be on the chopping block, right? Um, you know, now you sell five thousand copies of a book, and you're a fucking hero. Um, <laughs> but um, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be that way. But but it, it's, it's still. It was it was a different time for comics, and there was an acceptance of giving things a chance. Right. And because you're right, I mean, look at all the changes in the '80s, all the things that I don't think these types of things would happen in today's books. I mean, you're right; you had a Fantastic Four without the thing. You had, um, you know, we talked about on this podcast before, dude. You had an Avengers team led by Doctor Druid. <laughs> You know what I mean? I just, yeah. just just bizarre ass shit. Things that you just would not expect. And it was like Marvel Marvel and DC at the time were like, look, we're making this transition. This is the future. And they ran with it for a good period of time. And then they said, okay, let's bring it back to the core. And like even with Justice League, when it was just called Justice League after Justice League Detroit ended, that Justice League team was not full of heavy hitters. The biggest heavy hitter was Batman. Right. It was, you know, Batman, Man, Martian Manhunter, Dr. Light, um, you know, Guy Gardner, Blue Beetle. It, uh-huh. it was that that was not a heavy hitting team. And and so they still taking chances. Suicide Squad, a book about villains basically becoming like, you know, the secret stealth team taking, you know. Who you know? Who would you know even think DC would do something like that again? You know, taking chances. It was all right. about taking chances during that period of time. Some of those chances, fantastic. Others, Millennium miniseries didn't work. Um, <laughs> oh come on! No 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 no. Here's the deal: the crossovers. <laughs> the crossovers were excellent. I loved every single freaking crossover because, oh, so and so's actually a Manhunter. Awesome. That miniseries though, dude. No. No, you can't convince me on it. The book ended with, hey, here are the new Guardians. No, I was done. I was done. (laughs) 
I definitely am in the vocal minority on this one. And and Matt, you know, my my co fellow co-host over on CGS, he feels the same way. There are some good things about Millennium, especially in the first like four issues or so. And then yes, it starts to go really wonky and um, it, it just gets a little bit ridiculous here and there. But uh, some of the some of it actually wasn't too bad. This whole you know the the man like you say the Manhunters invading the the DC universe because they got the you know at the end of history of the DC universe Harbinger a character from the crisis she sends off you know she's basically recording the whole history of the DC universe and she sends it off in a satellite you know out into space and that's what the Manhunters got a hold of so they learned the history of the DC universe and were able to like put themselves into various people's lives so i thought that was a neat connection yes um thing there but so yes there are some crazy stuff millennium is looked upon as uh not one of their better ones and i agree with that mm-hmm. and it it certainly tanked dc for uh you know a few years after that but i i, I gotta admit there's some stuff in millennium that i do actually kind of like look legends is great legends has great artwork the story's kind of interesting but by the end, that book, too, was kind of like, what? Oh, yeah. You know, when, when they were sending out the warhounds and all that, you were like, what? <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> Dark side, what are you thinking? But yeah, man. but I, you're right. Millennium did end, end bit. But I, I have to admit, every now and then, I, I'm slowly rebuilding my Millennium uh, 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 collection because I sold them off years ago. But Yeah, I, I, I did, too. I had... I had... 80% of the crossovers from Millennium. And as you know, like I know, they had a lot of crossovers. Oh, yeah, they did. And I don't think I had, I think I only have like two or three issues of Millennium crossovers now. And they're either Justice League uh, crossovers or that Superman Millennium crossover that had Green Lantern in it. And I kept uh-huh. it, and I kept it because it was a burn book. I, I know I, I give Millennium a lot of shit, but it's still better than Genesis. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> it it dude and see it hurts my heart because Genesis use uses one of my favorite and honestly to me unappreciated artists, Ron Friends. Yeah, you make an event, Ron Friends is like this is my book. I'm, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm about to get paid. The High Father. Oh no, you, you know. And once again, you're using you know for fourth world concepts. And, and things like that and it the payoff was not there it was i no i i, I just no i it was bad we're, we're gonna we're gonna end it on a happy note we don't want to talk about bad bad events because then i could talk about that stuff forever um <laughs> but no um now so we've talked about Justice League Detroit. We've talked about, you know, 80s comics. We've talked about, you know, you know, revolving art teams, artists, and their impact on these series. And talking about 80s comics, you have a brand new podcast that kind of revolves around 80s comics, right? Uh, I'm, it, it's not out yet, okay. uh, but I will be starting uh, an 80s comics podcast um, I, because I, I haven't really done a lot of research. I don't, I don't know if there's another podcast that talks about the 80s exclusively um but it's going to be an 80s comics podcast and it's going to be exactly kind of what we did here um taking a look at the time of in comics that i'm super familiar with um as a way to show a number of things uh mostly to show how much 
of a transitional period it was, not only for Marvel and DC, but for indie comics and for the comics industry in general. You know, think of the rise of the direct market and think of the rise of comic stores and um, media attention that comics were starting to get. So the 80s incorporates a lot. And uh, excuse me, um, I'm going to be taking a look at that. And I'm still sort of working it out in my brain how I want to do it. Um, I do have a title, but I'm not going to say it just yet because I, I think it's an awesome title and I just I, I don't want anybody to steal it. Right. <laughs> um, um, and, uh, and I may have uh, someone who's going to work with me on that, maybe two people. Uh, but it, it's sort of just still a germ of an idea that I think will be a lot of fun to do. So, yeah, there will be an 80s comics podcast um, coming out eventually. And uh, we'll see what happens. And, and definitely, you know, we'll get to certain points. I'll be looking to bring in uh, experts. So uh, you're going you're gonna to be on that list for anything you, you, you think you want to talk about. We'll, we'll, we'll get you in. Oh, oh if, you, if you do one on the West Coast Avengers 4 issue mini, uh, I'm I'm there. Your West Coast See, Aven- West Coast Avengers period. I'm there. That was my shit. Oh my god. I I think Marvel those four issue miniseries that Marvel were was doing and the six issue the ones the ones they were doing in those mid eighties they were fantastic. Yeah man. And I wish they would do, I wish they would do an essentials just of those miniseries. Stick a whole bunch of them in to fill up two, three volumes of Essentials. Falcon, West Coast Avengers, Iceman, Kitty Pride and Wolverine, mm-hmm. uh, Nightcrawler, yes. Beauty and the Beast, yes. Machine Man, mm-hmm. you know, just over and over, Submariner, you know, there were so many of them and they were awesome. You know, so I, I think they would do themselves, so they should do that. That I would buy that book totally. Black and white, I don't care. Just oh, yeah. to have them. Oh yeah, yo, dude, you don't understand. Like when I used to collect comics in the '80s, my uncles collected comics too. And if you combined all of our collections together, we had all of those. Oh wow! You know, we we had them all. And because if I didn't want to take a risk on buying the Gargoyle miniseries, my yeah. uncle my, <laughs> my, my uncle did. And if he didn't want to take a risk on buying Iceman, the Iceman mini, I bought it. And and like if 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 two of us didn't want to buy Nightcrawler. You know, our other uncle bought it, and so we we just trade comics back and forth. It's just it was so much fun, and and I remember I can't remember if it was Dematis that said this or another or another writer that said this. He said that um, the genesis of a lot of those miniseries was basically guys would just walk into an editorial office or Jim Shooter's office and say, "Hey, I want to do a four issue mini on Iceman." They'd be like, "Yeah, go ahead." Yeah. Or Magic, right? Magic and, yeah. and Hawkeye. Hawkeye had one. Oh, I love the Hawkeye one. I love it. I love and, it. And you're right. You know, it's funny. The, the other reason why I want to do an 80s podcast is because I really feel that what's going on now in comics is very similar. Obviously, you know, you had the parallels between what DC was doing after Crisis and what now they're doing totally revamping their book. And Marvel's going through a whole change as well coming up with Marvel now and in response to what DC's doing. And that's kind of what they did back then, too. You know, bringing in uh, at that time, it was bringing in you know, the big artists like Rob Liefeld and Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson, you know, changing up the look of what their books look like. So the the 80s were very transitional. And I feel we're going through that now, not only in the books, but with the excitement that people are having, you know, as much as people want to be negative about DC's reboot, as much as they want to be sarcastic or snarky about Mar- what Marvel's doing. If you go to a convention, 
people are excited about what's going on. And that's the last time there was this much excitement was probably around the days of infant crisis and civil war. I mean, that's that's how far back, almost 10 years you have to go back, that I can remember going to conventions and there being like an electricity in the air mm-hmm. of, about comics, not just not just Marvel or DC, but about comics in general. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of don't want it to always be led by the big two publishers. You kind of wish there was other other books, you know, certainly Walking Dead brings it out, but... You know, there's there's an excitement going on now that's very real. And and if you're only behind a computer and you're tapping away behind your fake forum name and and you're you're reading your books but bitching about them anyway, and you're not going out and and really being part of the culture, then you don't see that, and you're not going to see that. And right. that goes that goes for that goes for people who are just reading comics. It goes for people who are creating comics, and it goes for people who are talking about comics. You know, a lot of the blog. I'm I'm on a big thing these days where a lot of bloggers are really down and negative on comics, uh, you know, especially corporate mainstream comics. But but they don't really they're they're not really immersing themselves in the culture right. of comics, and and they don't realize that you know if someone is is excited about Jeff Lemire's Frankenstein, that means it's maybe when this underwater welder book comes out, they might pick that up. Mm-hmm. You know, and. Uh, uh, it's 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 a fun thing to be part of the culture and realize just how positive it actually is from Marvel and DC all the way down to self-published mini comics. I mean, it, it really it's it's a it's a cool time right now. I can't you know say enough to people to go immerse themselves go immerse themselves in the culture so you can form your own opinion and not just what a blogger or journalist tells you to you know to like and what and what what to like and what not to like go find out yourself and see yeah. and see why you like x or y and you know no 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 not a lot of places have the venues that we have i mean i'm lucky i got i got four comic book shops in my neighborhood right and and you know we and we actually have a convention in in our in our in our town now which went over so well it had so many people that they're turning it into a two-day show and it's probably going to have double the amount of people coming to it as it did this year um, is that the derby derby city con oh no no this was yeah. uh, this was a lexington comic and toy con oh right i always forget where you are <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay dude i'm like a ninja i'm stealth man i'm, I'm everywhere <laughs> but no it's uh lexington comic and toy con it was this year it was a re- it was a real big hit it was and like it's this might be jacked up for me to say but it, it's the best way i can say it imagine a wizard world show that actually worked nice that's what this show is. You do have like, you know, the entertainers from like kids shows and sci-fi shows. You've got but you've got a slew of artists, you've got a slew of vendors, and it's all mixed in together. Like pretty much vendors are on one side, but like as far as like comic books, like uh publishers and artists, they're all mixed in together. There's no segregation there. And it was such a great show and there was so much foot traffic that um literally for a while you know people couldn't move they are already expecting double and possibly even triple the amount of people there uh, next year wow um because like lexington has a huge comic and arts community it, it i mean it's huge it really is i had no idea and 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 you hit it on the head when you said you have to go out and immerse yourself 
in the community to find out what your community does art wise. And right. for three years, I was, you know, I was working on making comics, whether it was just me doing PKD stuff and then doing Action Lab and having to learn how to become a business person. Right. And I was like at my computer day in, day out. And so I didn't get to see what was out there. Uh, you know, it was out there until like, you know, mid 2012. And I started meeting people, started, you know, well, not, I should say mid 2012, mid 2011. And I started to meet people and like, you know, and do things and like find out, oh, we got this, we got this. I didn't know we had this many comic book shops. Oh, we're having a show. La da 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 da. And like, you know, now, like I'm immersed in it now and I fucking love it. That's awesome. You know, I was, a lot of what you're saying is very true. Uh, in, you know, I, I do theater and I do, uh, shows and I'm on the stage or behind the stage and behind the screen scenes. And it's very true. You know, Philadelphia has a very big community of theater actors and, and, and professional, you know, uh, professional theater actors, professional theater companies. And you have to get out there and hustle and meet and network because that's where your next jobs are going to come from. And it's the same thing with comics. You know, it, the, some of the greatest pro, uh, projects or some of the more interesting collaborations comes because creators see each other at a con and they're at the bar con afterwards and they're they're drinking and talking the next thing you know they're working on a book mm -hmm. you know or they're creating a new character a new whatever and you 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 have you can't isolate yourself in this kind of business uh you, you really do have to get out because great things happen because of it yeah man that's absolute truth and 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 i understand that now and 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 i get it and it's and it's made it a lot better for me yeah dude i mean you know, there'll be times where I'm running on fumes for like a month, month and a half, but that, you know, the passion's still there. You know what I mean? It, it, it's still there. That fire is still there. And, and now that I know people around here in my neighborhood, you know, in my neighborhood that are just as passionate as I am about it, it, you know, it relights that fire. Now, if I can only clone myself and <laughs> I, can, I can get a lot more done and, uh, but no, but no, you also have another podcast called The Daily Reels, correct? Right. Can you tell it's, me about the Daily Rios, please? Absolutely. Uh, I don't know where when this episode is going to come out, but as of now, I just completed the first week of the Daily Rios. It's uh, uh, a year ago, July 1st, 2011, was the last time I was on CGS. And uh, a year had gone by, and I had gone to a convention, Denver Comic Con, and, and also MoCA before that. And people were saying, you know, when are you going to get back? When are you going to get back? And I, I, I always knew I was going to come back, but I didn't know in what way, in what kind of way. Come back to podcasting, I should say. And uh, I came up with the idea of the Daily Rios as uh, it was meant to be an experiment to sort of just get my feet wet with slow podcasting. Uh, you know, I, I certainly had done interviews by myself or, you know, the 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 Titans related podcast that I did called the tower was by myself, but, uh, you know, I wasn't doing something like what Derek Coward was doing or Bruce, Bruce Rosenberger, you know, it was just them. It was, I, I was like, okay, let me see if I can do this. So I, I came up with the idea of doing the daily Rios and it's really just meant to be snippets of, of thoughts and ideas, nothing really too fleshed out. Um, I don't want the, the episodes to be long. You know, they're, they're not going to be real long. But they're going to come out Monday through Friday, and they're going to be about a number of topics of things that, that I think about, comics and theater and maybe life and love and family. Who knows? Um, and uh, that's really uh, – that's just sort of like my 
I guess you can even call it my vanity project more than anything. It's just a little bit, a little thing I want to do Monday through Friday uh, to get to keep keep the energy going. If people listen, great. If they don't listen, that's cool too. And then ultimately, it's going to spin out and do the podcasts that uh, I also really want to do: the '80s comics podcast, um, bringing back the Tower, taking a look at the Titans, and and just some more general podcasting that i want to do now those episodes will once they start they'll probably come out every once a week or once every other week or something like that so the daily reels is is kind of like an umbrella to everything else that i want to do um once i get the website up i'll start doing reviews uh, because i have a lot of thoughts about comics and i have a lot of notes on previous things i've I've read and i just want to share it you know i i think it's fun to do people pay attention to it which is cool i get some feedback which is awesome and uh i get to talk about books that maybe people aren't talking too much about you know i'm i just love podcasting so i'm i'm, I'm back baby i'm back awesome well we're glad you're back man it's for real thanks it, it, you know it, it make it makes me it makes me happy uh to, to know that that you're back and like i can hear your voice on a daily basis you know i wish you the best of luck with the daily rios and very excited about the 80s comics podcast and i'm serious i will take time off from my job to, re- <laughs> to record anything about west coast avengers uh you know i'm for real that that you you give me an excuse to go back and look at those books i will go do it so <laughs> well i wrote it down i'm i wrote it down west coast avengers Sean prior and uh you know we'll we'll come up with the time that uh, uh, we can do that, and don't worry about it. No, that that's that's awesome. Uh, cool. I man. certainly certainly appreciate you letting me talk about you know JLA Detroit, um, and you know by the way, just kudos to everything that's going on with you and Action Labs. I mean, it's been really fun watching that grow, and uh, watching it, seeing you guys hit multiple conventions in the same weekend. That was awesome. Yeah, man. Just just everything you guys are doing with that is is phenomenal, and and for a small publisher like that to make a name for itself with the talent that you have and the books that you have and the interesting ways that you're making it work really just bravo well, thank you peter i really appreciate it man like we're all busting our butts to you know to, to get our you know one to just put the action lab name out there for everybody to see and it's so much work and and you know and then for those that that know of what we're doing and like support us i always appreciate it and i love it and we just want it to grow man we we honestly just want it to grow i mean if this was the 80s if this, I look at it, I just look at how the industry, the business, I can't call it an industry because it's not an industry anymore. It's a business. Right. Um, but if you look at the industry of the 80s, right now, I think we would be skyrocketing through the roof right now if it was the 80s. If it was the 90s, you know, it would be, I still, you know, before the bust, we would be, you know, through the roof right now. But because of the way the business is right now, we're making a name. People know of us. People have heard of us. It's you know, it, like words can't explain the amount of emotion. Like I get, you know, I feel over it. Like it, I love comics. I, I wish the business was better. I wish, it, but like it's it's up to us to convince stores. Hey, you should buy our books. You know, it, it's 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 up to us. You, you know what I mean? It's it's not up to Diamond. It was never Diamond's job to right. s- to sell our books in the stores. You know, it's it's up to us to do it. It's it's up to us to convince stores and make stores believe in us so they buy our books and make our numbers increase. I just want us to get to that point where if I see a Diamond purchase order and I see the number that I want to see, I want to see that every month and I want to see it grow every month. I mean, I've talked to 
other publishers. I've talked to other comic professionals in the business. And, you know, and we discuss numbers and whatnot. And they're like, oh, that's really good. And he's like, for, for the way the business is right now, that's really good. And to me, it's not enough. It, right. You know, it, it's, it's not enough. And that's just because of my background. I'm an Air Force brat. You're supposed to do your best and get the most, you know, get the most out of, you know, out of your team every single, every single day, every single month. And I know we can do better, but, you know, there's only so much we can do at the same time. So, and I, and I, and I have to be realistic about that as well, but I'm very, very proud of what these guys do and guys and gals. Cause we got, we got women on the team too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, we trying to diversify. So, uh, you know, we were, and if they're, and if they're not on the team, they're in the background. Yeah. I know, you know. Can't, can't discount, uh, you know, everybody everywhere. So, no, all good. No, no, all good. it's all good. But no, man, Peter, you do not know. I'm, I'm hyped right now, and I'm so glad that I, that, you, that you came on the show. Uh, you kind of like, you know, gave me that boost to get back in the game again. So, cool. So, so thank you, brother. I appreciate you. Hey, no problem. I, I appreciate you. Let me talk. I see I love Jayla Detroit. I mean, I'm, I'm slowly building all the vibe comic experiences. And if I cosplay a character, it would be vibe. Because <laughs> I'll break out of the box and I'll bring some cardboard and I'll dance. But no, I love this series. I love that that run. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to give it some love for a little bit. Cool, man. Cool. Well, well thank you for coming on the podcast, man. I, I can't sure. say thanks enough and you're welcome back anytime. Awesome. Thank you. saw spider-man the amazing spider-man and i did now i need your opinion on it because i've talked to a few of my you know a few of my friends in town i've talked to a few of my friends you know across the states and 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 whatnot and all across the country and they all have varying opinions of this movie but i need to hear your opinion okay i loved it all right i really did i i liked it i'm not taken away anything from the Raimi movies I think um, I think uh, Andrew Garfield was a better Spider-Man and Peter Parker I think uh, Emma Stone embodied the entire uh, character of of Gwen Stacy Mm -hmm. Martin Sheen and Sally Field made me tear up on numerous occasions Mm -hmm. as uh, Aunt May and Uncle Ben um I'm not saying that the movie was without flaws. Yeah. But uh I thought it was fantastic. I I I can't wait for for the next two. Mhm. I as long as that motherfucker don't dance. <laughs> I ain't going to lie. I saw Spider-Man 3 in the movie theater twice. And dancing, you know, dancing Parker and all. I saw I saw it twice. And that movie's a hot ass mess, but I still love it. It's just you know, even though Topher Grace played Venom, which was a bad casting decision um but you know what i saw a toe for grace and predators he was he was good in that wasn't he i like that movie yeah man. predators is he, good man people shit on that movie i thought that movie was awesome yo man robert rodriguez made that movie with ten dollars and one set sa- and one sound stage in two days that dude's amazing, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, and I know a lot. Of, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people shit on Predators, but Predators is a good movie. At least Predators takes it, tries to take it back to the original model of Predator, 
um, you know, they try to take it. He tries to take it back to that original model. Yeah, it's not the perfect film, but it's still a very good movie. And people need to understand 20th Century Fox did not give Rodriguez a lot of money to make that movie. He made that movie on the quick. And and people just forget that many, 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 many years ago, he went to. 20th Century Fox. This was off of the. Uh, this was like off off the success of I think Desperado uh, and, and stuff like that. He went to 20th Century Fox. He said, "I want to make a Predator movie," and I think he may even possibly mention that he wanted to do a Predator versus you know Alien versus Predator movie, and um, possibly. But you know, he went to him, said, "This is what I want to do with Predator. This is what we can do. This is you know we could do all this." And they're like, "Nah, that's okay. Nah." And then, you know, a decade later, you get, you know, Alien versus Predator and then AVP2. And then 20th Century Fox is like, man, we fucked up both these franchises. And then later on, you know, they finally let Robert Rodriguez make, you know, Predators, which was, you know, which was a success and profitable. Will you, will you see another Predator film? I don't know. But um, I don't know, man. I really don't know. But Predators was really, really good. I lost track. I like it. Oh, oh, we were talking about Topher Grace. That's how we got to there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So let's get back to the Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you right now, who saves the day in Amazing Spider-Man? Who saves the day? Um, um, Dennis Leary. No. Who? C. Thomas Howell. Soul Man, bitches. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where was C. Thomas Howell? C. Thomas Howell was the construction dude where Spider-Man saved his kids. That was he C- lined up all them trains. That was C. He, Thomas uh, Howell. All the cranes. And then he sat in the last one where Spider-Man could. He was about to fall to his death. And C. Thomas Howell just, he flipped that thing, uh, uh, the, the the crane with the with the beam on it. So Spider-Man could hang on and jump to the building. Hold up. That was C. Soul Man, bitches. That, that was C. Thomas Howell. That was C. Thomas Howell. I, I even I even looked at my wife and whispered in her ear and I said, you know who that is? C. Thomas fucking Howell. I, I didn't mm, I, I didn't mm, mm. I didn't recognize him with you know with, with with the gray hairs, man. Or the darker hair. I just like I I'm still used to like oh, like eighty C. Thomas Howell, so I did not know that. Now, see, now, yeah. <laughs> you didn't recognize him because you, you thought he was really black. Is that what it no, was? No, no, no. You, you, you know you know I'm still mad about that movie, right? I'm still mad about that movie. I'm furious, dude. Furious about that film. Cocaine was running rampant through Hollywood. Yeah, man. Everything sounded like a good idea. Yeah, man. White people lost their fucking minds for a period of time. You know, actually, well, never mind. I won't won't go any further than it. Amazing Spider-Man, Jack's father, didn't even have a character name. I thought that from, like, the standpoint of as far as the fluidity of Spider-Man, when he was, like, you know, shooting his webs and, like, you know, swinging through the city, there's, like, a lot of, like, McFarlane type vibe with the poses and stuff that was awesome the you know the swinging and doing all that stuff that was great loved that when he was spidey being the you know the you know the you know the joker you know joking around with villains and whatnot and like little petty thieves and stuff that was cool um i i really liked emma stone as gwen stacy and it kind of makes me wonder sometimes, as much as I, I, dude, I enjoy the original Spider-Man films. I'm like you. I don't take anything away from the Raimi films because that was a different, that was a decade ago. And literally, that's a whole different era of Spidey. Different uh, visions. Yeah. Yeah. Way different visions. Um, way different visions. But I really, it made me wish for, you know, the Spidey films to start, the original, the Raimi films to start with Gwen Stacy. Or better yet, um, Bryce Dallas Howard 
I wish she could have played Gwen Stacy in the first Spider-Man movie instead of introducing Kristen Dunst as Mary Jane. As Mary Jane, I understand why you know Kirsten Dunst got Mary Jane the role of Mary Jane because she was you know the hot topic of Hollywood during that period of time. Even though in my eyes she was never Mary Jane, but that's neither here nor there. Let me get yeah, back to Yeah, she didn't point. really play Mary. Well, basically, but that wasn't really, I don't think that was kind of her fault because she is a good actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think it was the script's fault where she was basically, uh, she just seemed like, you know, whenever Tobey Maguire did some shit and like she spent half the movie pissed off and then the other half of the movie she was just a damsel in distress. Right, Like right, they didn't right. give her anything to do. Oh, exactly. Exactly. You know what I mean? No, I agree with you 100, 100% on that. Whereas with this Spider-Man movie, Gwen Stacy had something to do. And you also had Captain Stacy played by Dennis Leary, which I did enjoy. Was, I think he was good. Yeah, so did I. Although he's starting to look his age. Yeah, well, and the thing is they removed J. Jonah Jameson from the, you know, there's no J. Jonah Jameson in this film. So in a way, Captain Stacy was kind of like that J. Jonah Jam- Jameson in a way. Mm-hmm. So like they kind of combined J. Jonah Jameson and Captain Stacy and it was, you know, into one character. Even though, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil this for people. So I'm letting you know right now. So you might want to turn it down or cover your child's ears. Um, even though they killed Captain Stacy, I kind of figured that was going to happen. But I was still salty that it happened. You know what I mean? It's just like, fuck. I was really enjoying this character, but I kind of figured this was going to happen. The CGI on the, on the lizard um, from Sony Imageworks, because Sony Imageworks did all the CGI, which I was really surprised because they're okay. You know, they do a decent job, but I've never seen them do as well of, as well of a job as they did with this movie, especially with the lizard. Um, right. Kirk Connors, you know, the, the gentleman that played Kirk Connors did a really good job, too. I like Garfield. I like Andrew Garfield as Spidey. It's a different type of Peter Parker. I'm not going to say it's like hipster Peter Parker. The, no, but you know what? He was more, to me, not to cut you off, but he was more of the comic book version of Peter Parker um, in Ultimate. And, and Spider-Man than McGuire was. Um, I think, but see, I also think that's a lot. I think it has a lot to do with, I think it follows more of the Ultimate Spider-Man template than like the quote-unquote you know, 616 Spidey that we've read over the decades. Sure. You know, which is which is fine, you know, which is fine. I think the, the biggest beef I think a lot of people have is that you're, re- you're basically retelling an origin story which I, I honestly could have done without because as much as I love Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben and uh, Sally Field as Aunt May. I thought you say nothing bad. No, I'm not saying anything bad oh, about okay. them. Nothing bad about them at all. It's it's just you know going through that setup all over again. That was the problem. But at the same time, it's like I really like Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben. I really did. And and yeah, I knew he was going to die. I think a, a lot of people are upset at the fact that there's this like just this quick progression. And quickly, in like less than like an hour or so, Peter goes from being constantly picked on to kind of being accepted to them being accepted in school. You know what I mean? Whereas in all the previous Spider movies, Parker is never accepted by anybody. You know what I mean? Like like with Flash Thompson. You, you know, Flash Thompson is a perfect example. In this movie, in one, in one film, Flash went from fucking Peter up to Peter Duncan on Flash to Flash and Peter being kind of cool in, in one film is that quick of a transition. And, I, you know, and, and I, and I rubbed a lot of people like it rubbed a lot of my friends the wrong way. And it used to like and like with the previous Spider films, it was more of a thing of Peter always being the ultimate dork, 
we get some redemption every now and then, but Peter can never truly have a good day. There would always be something fucked up that happened that that happens. Whereas mm-hmm. whereas in this film, yes, bad things happen to Peter and bad things happen to Spidey, but at the same time there's re- you know, this character gets like, you know, a little bit more redemption. You know what I mean? Like but the thing is, I think Mark Webb had a, the director. He did a good dude. He did a good job for all the shit that was on his that was on his shoulders. I mean, you know, Sony was probably you know peeping over his shoulders every single fucking day, and, sure. had, and had their hands in that shit meddling meddling and, in that movie you know, every single day. And the thing of it is, is to reboot a franchise, um, so close to when the last one came out, you, you're kind of like, well, we don't want to get too much into this because they've seen it. You don't want to do too much of this because people have already seen it. And, you know, I I think he did a really good job, especially with all the relationship stuff, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I agree. I, I think that the fact that uh, Emma Stone and, and, and Andrew Garfield played off each other so well was because of, you know, they're involved in real life. Yeah. And I just, I told my wife, I said, well, I hope they stay involved until these next couple of movies are <laughs> fucking over with and then they can do whatever they want. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I think another issue, I think another issue is, is that the concept of time in this film, it's kind of, it's kind of confusing. Does this happen in the span of weeks? Does this happen in a span of days? Does this happen in the span of months? Right. And I think that in itself gets, you know, you know, irritates some people because, see, then if you knew it was within a span of months, then maybe some people could understand the transition, uh, you know, Peter's transition and stuff like that. Or or maybe understand like if it was just in like in a span of days, then it would make sense why Peter didn't automatically go get a job to go help Aunt May. You know what I'm saying? Right. There were you know, there are a lot of people that complain that Peter isn't really a redeem, redeemable character. He's just not smug. It's just that he's not helping. He's not hel- He's not helping Aunt May. He's not taking that responsibility. Yeah, but he does take responsibility because he says into he says to to Gwen that you know I made the, I made him right right. You talking about it's my responsibility to to. Oh yeah, kick his ass. Get oh yeah, rid of him. no, yeah, no, no. That no, I agree with you one hundred percent on that. He took that responsibility there, whereas in the previous films, the way it was set up, Parker always made sure at least she tried to take care of home as well as taking care of the streets. So, and and that's something that could develop and grow as, as these movies go along. Like I said before, Web turn it to the street. <laughs> don't don't get me started on some Michael McDonald. <laughs> Oh, he sounds like he's getting ready to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna just woke him up from a nap and shit. Like, or no, better yet, like when he sang that song "On My Own" with Patti LaBelle. Yo, man, that's like the ultimate like slow jam. I'm about to go to bed song. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that boy! I wish I could do a Michael McDonald imitation. I was not getting you in the mood. Getting you in the mood for a nap. Getting you in the mood for a nap. <laughs> and that's a depressing ass song too. Let's be real. Two people that had an affair, and at the same time, they're about to break up, even though they had an affair, and they are already in relationships with other people. And I'm like, this shit is fucking depressing. When I was a kid, I was like, damn, this song is fucked up. Now that I'm older, I'm like, damn, this is even more fucked up. Um, and like in the video, Paola Bell has shellac in her hair. She had that crazy hairstyle. Sorry. Once again, irrelevant, ir- irrelevant bullshit. I like the film. 
I enjoy the film. Yes, there are like I said, there are like problems with it. Like the whole storyline with the dude that was working for Oscorp that was like, I'm gonna tell Norman. And where'd that dude go? He died. No, he? no, he didn't die. He escaped. He got out the car. He he escaped. But the thing is, is that supposedly there is like 25 minutes of 25 minutes of footage. Some dude took like all the trailers, both international and you know, and uh, domestic, and put together like a 25 minute Spider Man movie. And there's a scene where that dude ends up in the lizard's lair and gets like you know choked to death by or gets killed by the lizard. That was not in the film at all. So it, it, that character just goes away. You don't know what happens to that character. He just goes away. Um, but like I said before, Mark Webb had a lot on his shoulders when he made the movie. I, like I said, I enjoyed it. I had a good time with it. I had a lot of fun with it. It's a different take on the previous on the previous Spidey, which I also enjoy. I enjoy the Raimi movies. And yeah, the, the third one is a mess, but I still love it. Even though it's like, this is what Sony wanted. This is what Raimi wanted. And you get this sandwich. You with- can almost see in that point in that movie where Raimi, uh, Sam Raimi gave up. Yeah, where he was just like, you know, if this is what you want, fuck it. All right, I'm gonna make twenty million. I don't just, just fuck it. Yeah, me and Bruce Campbell are gonna go have a fucking, we're gonna have a cigarette <laughs> and go fucking relax, have a cheeseburger. <laughs> and the whole thing with Parker's parents, that was different too. I didn't expect them to use Parker's parents in the film because, like in the previous movies, there was yeah, they did the ultimate version. Yeah. So so yeah, I was, that kind of that kind of took me by surprise because I didn't really watch a lot of I didn't watch a lot of trailers for 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 Amazing Spider Man. I think I only no, saw I didn't one. Either. So so I walked in not really knowing much about it. I just walked in and said, "Let's just watch this movie and hopefully it's good." Um, but yeah, but no, like I said, I enjoyed it. It's it's you know it to me like I said, it's two different sets of it's two different sets of films. Um, you know, is it the greatest thing on earth? No, but I still I still did like it and I would like to see a sequel. I would give it a 4.75 Chewbacca's out of 6. All righty then. That's what I would do. Well, that's what you did then. How yes. about you? Uh, I would give it, if I did it out of a scale of 5, I would give it a 3.5. No, we do 6. Oh, we do 6? Okay. This is Chewbacca's, man. Oh, this is Chewbacca's? Okay. You could jump on my, my bandwagon, son. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I thought you that. Just do it. I just, just, we're, we're a team. I thought that was trademark Donnie Salvo 2012. So, I yeah. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, if 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 you go on a scale of six Chewbacca's, I will give it a four. Okay. I want to talk to you about Savages because you've seen it. I haven't seen it yet, and I need your opinion on it. But before I do, I had a bunch of store credit. Well, not that much store credit. I had enough store credit in mycomicshop.com that I needed to clear out. Mm-hmm. And you know me, Donnie. I got books that you've sent me and Daryl sent me. And I need to talk to you about Daryl, too, because that dude got issues. Um, yeah, there's nothing new there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I got all these books. But, you know, if I got store credit, I need to use it. I need to buy more books so I can eventually read them by the time, you know, 2017 rolls around. So I had the store credit and I went to mycomicshop.com. And they had the sale. It's like, well, this is a perfect time to get some books. So what I did was I went and I bought some books and I bought all trades. Okay. I bought um, like when when Marvel was doing like those uh, digest size trades, I bought Arana, you know, like you know the Spider Girl character Arana. I bought that one. I bought Mike Norton's Gravity. I bought that that mm-hmm. that little digest. That was a good book. Oh, what? Okay, cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that then. I also bought 
two of the uh, Marvel Essentials, the, the Essential, uh, the Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe, Volume 1 and Volume 3. I bought, um, let's see, what trades did I get here? I got The Maze Agency, Volume 1. And, like, that's old school. That's like Adam Hughes did the artwork and uh, Rick Magar did the inks for it. Um, I did, I also bought Blade, Black and White. It's like the original Blade stories from like the 70s. I got the Spider-Man, uh, the uh, Spider-Man trade uh, called Election Day. It's the one that's got President Obama on the front cover giving like the, the thumbs up. They had that trade hardcover, two ninety nine. So I was like, yeah, I'll get that too. And I bought this book uh, called, um, it's like, it's a, one, it's a Wonder Woman, it's a Wonder Woman book that talks about the history of Wonder Woman. Um, I got the first volume of the original Exo Man of War from Valiant, the original one, which I've never read, ever. From back in the day? From back or in the, the day. the one from the 90s? Um, the one from, you know, the, uh, hold on, I'm pulling it out right here. Exo Manor War Retribution from 1993. Yep. 93. From 93. Um, That's going to be armorific. Yes, it is. With, Pocket filled. Yes. Adventure. Yes, with uh, pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, Sal Valuto, and Mike Manley, with inks, <laughs> with inks from Bob Layton and a ton that would of other be people. An awesome uh, porn star named Mike Manley. And I also bought a, um, a graphic history of African Americans called Still I Rise. Um, which I'm really interested in reading. So I got that. And then I still have some more credit left. And I bought the first half, because I, I didn't have that much credit, credit, but I bought the first half of the Justice League Detroit run that I've always wanted because I lost a lot of those over the years. I bought the first half, including both annuals. Where they fight Crowbar. Yes. And fastball. Yes. But I also bought Volume 1 of the, the, the well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't even say volume one, but it's, the, it's a collected trade paperback of the Spectacular Spider Ham. I love that, dude. I used to love Spectacular Spider Ham. That was my shit as a kid. Ain't nothing wrong with that. And um, I bought that, and it has like issues one through five, plus it has some other stuff that was never, you know, that was in like certain comics from way back when. And I'm like I got like a Spider Ham 25th anniversary issue and and some other things. So now I'm completely out of credit, but I still need to buy the last half of the Justice League Detroit run so I can have my Justice League Detroit run, my All Star Squadron, and 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 I need to get a couple of Justice League, uh, Boahaha era trades, and then that run is all done, and I will be happy. Now when I'm when I'm actually gonna be able to read this shit, that's a whole other story, dude. Oh, believe me, I know. You know. Oh, I know. I feel your pain. Man. You don't even know how much shit I got to read. You know. I mean, I dude, I think if we combine our book collections together, I think we could, we could run like a superstore. Oh, sure. Just out of the stuff we didn't read. Exactly. It's ridiculous. Okay, here we okay, go. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Black Mass, Crowbar, Fastball, Overmaster, <laughs> Shatter Fist, Shrike, and Nightfall. Wow. Versus Elongated Man and Aquaman, and this was Aquaman when he was a dick. Mm-hmm. Steel, Vibe, Vixen, Zantana, Martian Manhunter, Gypsy, and Dale Gunn. Yes. Yes. People don't remember Dale Gunn. No, they don't. Talk to me about Savages. We might, because the, the wife and I might be going to see it soon. Lee and I might. Savages is awesome. It's about this, these dudes. One is um, um, 
ex uh, army dude, and the other one is like a hippie, hippie botanist, and they get together and they grow like one of the most powerful strands of weed ever, mm-hmm. and they make millions off of it. And then uh, this Mexican drug cartel leader who is getting kind of like pushed out of the business decides that they're going to take over all these smaller guys uh, in California and whatnot. And so basically they they make Taylor Kitsch, Aaron Johnson, an offer and they turn it down. And then so they kidnap their girlfriend, Blake Lively. And Blake Lively is, yes, both of their girlfriends. Oh, they, sh- they share her or she shares them or whatever. But, dude, this movie was very good. Travolta's good in it. Oliver Stone is the director. Uh, at the end, it gets a little Oliver Stoney, and fans of Oliver Stone kind of know what I mean. But Benicio Del Toro, mm-hmm. that dude was just heartless through this whole thing, man. Mm. He plays the one of the drug cartels enforcers, just like... You just—he was just like so nonchalant about the whole thing, you know, like like just walking into somebody's house and like torturing their wife right in front of them, and, and you know, shooting a dude in the knees and watching him bleed, and then shooting him in the air and shooting him. It was just insane. I have to say that Selma Hayek was really good in it too. Not one of my favorite actresses. She's great to look at. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, as far as an actress. Goes. She's not really one of my favorites, but she is but, better than Penelope Cruz. <laughs> okay, I don't, I've never seen that much stuff with Penelope Cruz to even make a. a, a <laughs> I really couldn't even make a comparison. Okay, no problem. To no be problem. honest with you, at least you know I, I've seen her in, in Selma Hayek in in uh, in, a, in a lot of movies. Actually, let's see what have I seen her? Desperado, of course. Uh, Once upon a time in Mexico. Uh, Grown Ups. She, she, her her stint in Thirty Rock was funny. Well, I've seen her in a ton of shit, actually. Dogma, from Dust Till Dawn. I mean, she didn't do nothing really in Dust Till Dawn to shake her ass, but that's okay. I mean, you know, <laughs> it works for me. But you know, I'm afraid that because it will came out. This movie came out with Amazing Spider-Man, and it's going to get lost in the shuffle. Oh, it already has been lost in the shuffle. Dude. Yeah, it, it already has. Savages just came out. It came out the wrong time. But when do you when do you release a movie like Savages? November, October, October, November. When do you release it? I just I feel bad for Taylor Kitsch because well now that John Carter is doing really well on Blu-ray and it and it technically was not a flop because especially because it did so well overseas um, in, in the overseas box office, but still domestically it didn't fare well. But it's doing well on Blu-ray, so it's you know it. They, eventually, they're, you know, they should probably be out of the red. Hopefully, if that advertising budget wasn't that that much out of control, but you had he had John Carter, Battleship, and Savages. All yep. all three films will probably like and see now. Now Savages only cost forty million to make. They didn't spend that much money in advertising. So if it ends up making like thirty million in the states or thirty five million, they hope they can recoup the rest either foreign. Uh, through foreign box office receipts or through, um, you know, uh, Blu-ray sales, cable packages and whatnot and streaming and all those other things. Um, So, like, they'll probably end up breaking even on Savages, but as far as, like, Battleship goes, 
I don't see that breaking even. Even though it's done well overseas, it still didn't do enough in the States to break even. They spent money out of the wazoo on advertising on that film, plus spent a lot of money on that movie too. But I feel bad for them. Three movies, and out of those three movies, you know, none of them was a, like, quote-unquote, financial success in the United States. And right. and folk and, and and I hope folks don't don't shit on him because because of it, but you know who knows he might have to go away for a while. I hope he doesn't. I think he's a really good actor. He was badass in this dude. Okay, have you ever seen a movie called The Way of the Gun? No. Go. It's, it's it came out in the nineties. It has uh, Benicio del Toro and Ryan Phillippe. And go and. Um, you could probably it might be instant streaming on Netflix, or you could probably buy it off used from Amazon for like a buck now. Go watch it, and if you ever get time to watch it, watch it, and then let me know what you think about it. Because when I see Savages, I, I think of The Way of the Gun, but they're two different films. They're they're not they're not the same at all. They're not they're not. But I still think about The Way of the Gun when I when I saw commercials for Savages. And how many Chewbacca's would you give it though? I, I give it a solid four. The ending, I didn't really care for all that much, but uh, I mean, I mean, you have to see it. I don't want to give anything away because that, you know what I mean. You have to see it, then you'll know what I'm talking about. Right, right, right. No, I feel you. Well, I watched. uh, not one, but the entire uh, Planet of the Apes uh, Blu-ray box set. Now, how, no, wait a minute. You watched all, you watched every last one of them. And how long did it take you? Two and a half weeks. Now, I watched I watched uh, the entire Blu-ray box set. I watched um, Mark Mark, and then I watched um, Rise. So I watched them all. You went all in. I was in. You, I did. You, I pushed all my chips, <laughs> and I said I'm all in. I know you were serious. When you watch the Marky Mark movie, that means like you are dedicated. Let me tell you something about the Marky Mark uh, version. Okay, did I want him to in the middle of the jungle bust into um, feel the vibration? Yes, I did. <laughs> did it happen? No, it did not. No, no. Um, I there was a lot of things wrong with Marky Mark's version of Planet number one it ain't Marky Mark's version of Planet of the Apes it's <laughs> Tim Burton's version of Planet of the Apes there were some cool things in there I actually liked all the characters Tim Roth was a little over the top but other than that I liked all the characters it had a good concept for a story but a bad execution of the story if you understand what I'm saying and then at the end of it when when you got the Tim Roth monkey uh, statue and and for the Lincoln Memorial and Marky Mark got this confused look on his face and he's walking around and there's eight policemen and firemen showing up. That shit was hysterical. <laughs> yeah, you put, a, you put an ape, you put apes in fireman costume. I mean, a uniform, not costume, uniform, and a police uniform, and you let them drive trucks and come out with their with six shooters. She pointed at Mark. That shit was funny. I don't care who you are. You're laughing. Yes. If you go back, we did a retrospective uh, last. We did a retrospective last year on the Planet of the Apes movie series um, with Gabriel Hardman and and Matt Burden. And we had and we had one episode where Donnie came in to talk Rise of the Planet of the Apes 
with Gabe. But if you go back and listen to one of those episodes, Gabriel Hardman was talking about how in you know the, the Tim Burton version, when they got to the end, they didn't know what to do. There essentially was no story, so they just made that shit up. They were like, all right, the monkey came, gave Marky Mark a spaceship, and what do we do now? And that was pretty much what happened. Monkey right? Abe Lincoln. Monkey Abe Lincoln. It, and it, monkey, monkey police officers. Yes. Now, if monkey, if the Monkey Abe Lincoln statue would have got up and pulled out two guns and started firing, shit would have been over. Dude, I want to see. See, it left me. I wanted to see more. I wanted to see, like, the um, the cop, the, the monkey cops. That, that are like I'm too old for this shit like and then you know and then the monkey police chief who's all like you're a loose cannon you know and then throws a banana at him just <laughs> he's just chain smoking and just <laughs> drinking 14 cups of coffee I think that would be awesome where's that movie I'm sure somebody had a script ready where is it you know somebody had a script ready you know we can hop on the internet you know somebody i mean a legitimate script because 20th century fox all those numbers was like hey this has made a lot of money um yeah it's got a lot of critical backlash but it's made a lot of money somebody just let's get a treatment out there for for a sequel and i'm sure somebody's got one out there man it's got like (laughs) it's got like monkey buddy cops and all types of crazy shit in it. I, I know it exists. The, inter- the internet will be proof that it exists. So we got to find it. So now I've seen all these. I want the television show and the cartoon <laughs> because that's the only thing. The cartoons I think you could find on YouTube or you, Hulu. You should be able to find them on Hulu still, sir. Yes. Yeah. So I, I might just do that. But there's no DVDs for for those. I mean, you probably get a bootleg at a convention. You, you you don't trust me. You don't need to buy them. I want to see them. I know. We just go watch them on Hulu, son. Watch them on Hulu. No, I mean, I want to see the TV show, man. I don't know the TV show. The TV show was available on DVD. It might be out of print. And even if it is, trust me, they made enough copies. You should be able to find that box set for like three dollars. Trust me. <laughs> For three dollars, dude, just pay you to take it away. Yes, like get this out my face. Get this out. Well, of it didn't my go face. on for long, right? No, no, no. Yeah, I think it, it, it like, went on for like a season and a half, and then the eighties. I think they brought it back as like three TV movies. Yeah, they, they just find episodes to make three TV movies or some shit. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, repackaging, baby. Yeah, that's how they did it. But you want you want to know something that was funny? What's that? Like my wife had a bug or whatever, so she kept falling asleep early. And I was like, man, I don't want to go out, do nothing. I was lazy. I said, I don't know, jump into this Planet of the Apes box set. Right? So I was watching it in our room when she was trying to sleep. You know what she turned around and said to me during the first and second ones? Well, what she said? These, these were actual lines that she said. She was half asleep. She says, Donnie, you lower the TV. This overacting is keeping me awake. <laughs> that, that's a line. She said that. <laughs> that's awesome. Yes. The only good human is a dead human. (laughs) Just so you know, the Planet of the Apes complete TV series, which came out in 1974, you can get it brand new for $21.93, or you can buy it from a reseller brand new on Amazon for $15.30. Nice. So it is there for you. It's on DVD? Yes. This will never be on Blu-ray, sir. Come on. No, no. You can you can pray to the to the TV gods to put it on Blu-ray. It's not going to happen. Damn it. So you can watch Bo and Luke Duke try to battle the Planet of the Apes. 
Say what? That's essentially what it was, man. You had a dude look like Bo, Bo, uh, Bo Duke and a dude look like Luke Duke on adventures trying to escape from the planet of the apes. And every, every episode is the same thing. They escape. They run away. Here's the apes with a net. Cover them with a net. Take them back. Oh, we got this problem. Can y'all help us? Sure. They go help. They let them free for a minute. Capture them again. Take them back. It was like the Hogan's Heroes of like <laughs> Planet of the Apes, man. Wow. <laughs> I know nothing. So go check I me. Mean, go check it out. This is, go, go check it out. Get it on the cheap and you'll be happy. But I don't think they'll ever put the cartoon series on DVD. I don't, I don't think they will. I mean, even, even though we know that there is a nostalgic group of people that would just buy it on site alone i don't think it would merit enough of a profit for them to even do it so watch it on hulu and and you'll be happy but now see but here's the thing man like i need to know because you never really watched all the original films you never seen them all in in their entirety and 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 because like i wasn't able to get your opinion on those last year and you and i and knowing you because i know you love this stuff i need Mm -hmm. your honest opinion of the entire series from the beginning to the end. The original series, that is. Uh, my opinion? Okay, we talked about Mark, uh, the original series. Okay, here we go. Planet of the Apes. I liked it. I just, I realized, though, that Charlton Heston is not a good actor. Um, and then <laughs> uh, Beneath of the Planet of the Apes, uh, to me, it was kind of like the Tim Burton. It had some good, it had some uh, uh, good points. It kind of had some... Um, uh, poo points, uh, but I like the uh, the actor in it a lot better than I did Charlton Heston, the main actor. Talk about uh, James Franciscus. Yes. Okay. Uh, that was beneath. Yeah, because they had like weird mutant humans that use telepathic powers, and like their big defense was uh, that <laughs> they caused these gigantic illusions to scare the apes away, yes. and they worshipped an atomic bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Escape from the Planet of the Apes was dope because they, they escaped the Planet of the Apes when Cornelius and his wife and Dr. Somebody escaped the Planet of the Apes when the humans blew it up in beneath the Planet of the Apes. And the time traveled for some reason and came to ni- 1971 or something like that, our time. And they were just hanging out and telling people their story and then the government wanted to kill their baby because yeah, because Victor Newman was mad. Yes. And 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 they said that that the baby was going to if they killed the baby then their future wouldn't happen and then you wouldn't have to worry about the human the human the human race falling and the apes taking over. But what happened was they were smart so they had the baby and they swapped it with with Ricardo Montalban's ape baby and um so and then they all died. Which I thought was kind of that was kind of dark, man. Dude, all the apes movies are dark. That was kind of dark. I know all of them, dude. All of them are dark, and they all have this depressing moment in them. Every last mm-hmm. one. Think about it. First, first apes movie. You find out, you know, Heston finds out that it's Earth because he see in it, and it leaves with a shot of like the destroyed Statue of Liberty. Second movie. Heston's almost dead. He's like, you know what? Fuck all y'all. I'm blowing up this planet. The end. <laughs> and, uh, and then the third one, yeah, um, Cornelius and Zira get killed. And but there's but but you get a little bit of hope at the end because you see the baby at the end mm-hmm. of the movie. A little bit of hope, but still it's dark. But please continue. And then um, so then Conquest, which I think was my favorite, and I watched the the, the extended cut, which is basically just you know 
it's basically another like half hour or so just apes kicking ass and um that's when uh caesar's all grown up and he that's their kid and ricardo montalban is trying to hide him from the government and that's when they were using um apes as slaves and things of that nature and all this other stuff and then uh caesar uh basically starts the revolution he starts that shit and and this all happens in the future of 1991 <laughs> the year i graduated high school where 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 was my ape no there no that wasn't going i want to hang out with an ape no that wasn't going i would i would have been like we would have fun man we would, I would, we both had real long hair like i did in 91 we were playing a hockey sack he was not playing hacky sack in 91 who was it? You. You you were not playing Everybody hacky. was playing hacky sack, man. Everybody had a kosher hacky sack on them in 91. Everybody <laughs> did. Everybody did. Not the kid. Not the kid. No, sir. No, I tried to play that shit one time. I was like, nah, man. I'm going back to the basketball court. Man. I, I tried. I tried. I was like, I either, I'll either throw a Frisbee or I'll go play some basketball. Because that hacky sack, I want to fuck nope, that nope, shit. Nope, 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 nope. I bet you, you probably... Wore them thin rim glasses and started growing dreads and wore one of them um knit African caps with with the um that look like a beret but they're not quite a beret a Rastafarian hat. Mm-hmm. I bet you look like one of them. No, but we had a lot of we had a lot of white dudes in my in like in Middletown. I used to do that shit. A lot of them with braided hair, nappy ass braided hair, the Rastafarian hats. Be playing hacky sack. Off like from like ninety one to ninety three. I even think they had a league, and it was ridiculous. That was not for me. I played hacky sack. I played hacky sack one time, and I kicked myself in the balls with with the hacky sack ball. I was like, yeah, I'm done. There's no need, no need. You know how is it physically possible to play hacky sack? And you kick the ball to your balls. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I don't need to play this shit. It's not for me. I mean, more power to you. More, more power, more power to you. If ninety one. And if I was at high school in the courtyard of the high school, everybody else is um playing hack sack, and, and you just you just chilling out with with your ape, and then you, your ape's just doing all kinds of flippy shit, it's doing all kinds of hack sack tricks, man. See, see, Donnie, here's the thing. The thing is, I think if you had an ape back in 1991, it would have been like the new adventures of every which way but loose. <laughs> he would be. He'd be playing hacky sack, smoking a pack of Marlboros a day, <laughs> sitting at the beach with me with a forty ounce of Heffen Reffer. <laughs> that was nineteen ninety one for for Donnie. That was pretty much it. Wait, what was that drink called again? It was forty ounce of Heffen Reffer. <laughs> you don't know Heffen Reffer? No, I don't know about no Heffen Reffer. No uh, sir. No sir. There you go. Next time you go to the package store. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go to the go to the beer section. Get you in the cooler and get yourself a forty ounce of the finest uh, malt liquor beverage. This side of Crazy Horse, and it was called Heffen Ref. Heffen was so classy that they turned around and said, 40 ounce is just not enough beer. Let's make a sixty-four ounce jug." So when you finish it, you can start a jug band. <laughs> After you were pissing yourself, you can have a band there. Listen, even but. during during the like the period of time in in my life in my life as a young as a young teen, 
uh, growing up in Middletown where we had some CD spots. Even the CD spots did not sell Heffern Refer. Um, you don't know. I was gangster in 91. I know you was gangster in 91, man. I walked man. into the corner store. I said to that fool, and the old Italian dude, he sell 40s, and he never checked ID. So I walked in there, and it was weird because I didn't start getting carded for booze till I was 21, which was weird. But anyway, so I went in there, and I said, uh, I said, give me an eight ball, son. And he looked at me. He said, what? I said, old E. And he went, what? And I said, old English. Give me a 40 old English. <laughs> and he did. I drank it. And I take it you also drank Mad Dog 2020? I, well, a couple of times, but I never went and bought it myself. I used to hang out with this dude who lived in the projects, and he had a big-ass cookout, man. And he had one of them Dr. Dre refrigerators from a video. I'm not even lying, dude. And you open it up, and the whole damn thing was filled with 40s of St. Ides and then all different kinds of Mad Dog. Why you didn't see you keep see you you're keeping us in the 90s with with these beverages St. Ides. <laughs> I'm just telling you I was. <laughs> and see and to bring it back around is if I had an ape he'd be doing all that shit too. And there it is. My ape would not want to fight the humans cuz he'd be like mine are cool. My mine is cool. Okay. And and then and then on the weekends Y'all order a bunch of Pizza Hut and play Mortal Kombat. That's true. We would. Okay. We up, up in the apartment that I rented from my parents <laughs> upstairs, I used to have uh, weekend tournaments of Mortal Kombat 3 on the Sega Genesis. Yes. See, that was, that, but that was, a whole, that was a whole other thing, too. You know, with, in the Genesis era, is it did, was that like the... the did that start the tournament era for friends to come over and play these long ass tournaments at your house? No, I think it was actually. It probably was, to be honest with you. I, I had a friend. I had a friend who had a Genesis and would do the Genesis tournaments, but he would make people like chip in, like would make people chip in three bucks. So if there's like eight of us, that three bucks would cover another controller because it always it only took two tournaments for a controller to get burned out. So he was. So he would say. Oh, y'all gonna pay y'all gonna pay y'all gonna pay for this usage. I got usage fees. You know, we all chip at three bucks a pop, controller go bad, there'll be another one right there. Boom, slide it in, we're good to go. So the game could just keep going. The Sega was the birth the Sega and the Super Nintendo were the birth of the tournaments. No, I take that back. I take that back. No Nintendo, the original eight bit Nintendo, we used to have Tecmo Super Bowl tournaments. I used to play with the Raiders and I had the backfield of Bo Jackson and Marcus Allen. But my quarterback, I think, was Jay Schrader, and he was terrible. So, <laughs> so I would just run, and you would hope and pray that the, that the your opposing team did not guess the run play that you were going to run because in Tech Mobile, Super Tech Mobile, you had eight plays, and you had four pass, four run, and you would have like uh, let's say would say if you wanted to run play uh, play one, which is a run play, probably a sweep to the right, you would hit up on the controller and the A button, and that would select your play. And the thing is, is that the opposing team could guess what play you're running, and if they chose the play that you chose, there's a good chance you were going to get stopped. Unless you had Bo Jackson, who, who, if he was at his top health level, players would just bounce off of him. And the only way that you could tackle Bo is if you slit tackle him and try to take out his ankles. Oh, my bad. My bad. See, I'm, I'm flashing back. <laughs> but...
Now let us continue. You've watched Planet. You've watched Beneath. You've watched Escape. You've watched Conquest. And now you're going to the last one. Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Battle for the Planet of the Apes was not as bad as I thought it was. But um, it, was, it had no budget, man. I know. <laughs> it had no budget. I like the story. It's just kind of like with the mutant humans, for um, because because you got to remember that like um, when beneath was over and escape happened, that reset the entire Planet of the Apes timeline. Right. You know what I mean? Because you went you went uh, to the past to go to the future. So these mutant humans did not have psychic powers, but they did have their bomb. And I was like, that bomb has stayed there for all those damn years. <laughs> And, and it still works. And it still works, right? Like they and they remodeled all that shit. If you look at at, at battle at, at where the humans lived, and then look at uh, beneath where the humans lived, it's like they just got a big ass cleaning crew and just cleaned up <laughs> all that shit. I mean, granted, yeah, it, you know what? Two thousand years had passed or some shit like that, but. I mean, I guess you get some work done in 2,000 years, but... You know, what's funny is, is that when you told me you were watching, doing this ape marathon, mm-hmm. you had texted me, and you had got to the battle, you finally got to battle for the Planet of the Apes. So, I'm going to t- talk to the people about the text, the texting between the two of us um, in regards to battle of the Planet of the Apes. Donnie said, battle for the Planet of the Apes is the weakest so far. I still have a half hour left. To which then I said... It was also the lowest budgeted film of the bunch, which doesn't help the quality of the story. To then which Donnie said, these motherfuckers brought a school bus to a fucking war. Who does that? (laughs) To then which I reply, a war with a big lots budget, sir. That's who. To which then Donnie replies, this movie is knucking futz, dude. (laughs) And then Donnie says, I like how they keep showing the same hut being blown up by like 12 different angles. They did, because you were supposed to think that that shit was a different hut, but it was not a different hut. It was the same hut, because the way they show it, the other two huts that are next to it never get touched. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they just they were just like, all right, show it from the back now. Show it from the left angle. Phil. Phil, do it from the right. <laughs> Go underneath. Do it, it again. Was. They just showed that shit from... That dude was like, all right, we can only blow up one hut. Get every fucking camera on now. <laughs> And get all the way around it. We got enough, I want. We got enough film for twenty seconds, sir. <laughs> well, get those fourteen cameras. Uh, but these dudes are like, why did you bring a school bus, man? I know. Uh, I mean, like, I can understand. Well, maybe you want to get some, um, get some troops there or some shit. But I don't know. It was just, it made no sense. No, it didn't. To what? To you, you had, you had jeeps with big ass guns on them and shit. Mm-hmm. And then it, and then you just had a dude driving a school bus. Yeah, I'm like, how is this school bus like military accessible? Um, but then I said, wait till the apes start chanting, "Ape shall not kill ape, ape shall not kill ape." To which then Donnie replied, "The gorillas done blew up the school bus." <laughs> to which then I replied, 20th Century Fox were some penny pitching motherfuckers, sir. That school bus is going to explode in 20 different angles." And to which then Donnie replied. They shot it up ninety times. Then Donnie, they sure did. Then they Don- showed they showed the ape shooting that bus up from seven different angles too. Yeah. <laughs> to which then Donnie then replies, "Ape has just killed ape." <laughs> to which then Donnie's last tweet—I mean, I tweet—but last text was, "Caesar is about to whoop some ape ass." 
did. He looked mad, but he didn't. What's his name? Fell and died. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Donnie and I text like this all the time. Yes, yes, we do. It, it actually helps us keep our sanity, to be honest with you, because we work crazy jobs where we want to kick people in the throats. Indeed. But see, I'm, I'm, but I'm glad you finally had the chance to experience all these movies, all of them. I'm so glad because I think, I look, I you know me, I love I love the Ape series. Did you watch any of the documentaries? I haven't. I didn't watch any of that yet. No, I just uh, I was trying to get. I wanted to watch the movies. I was more. I wanted the meat, man, not the taters. Oh no, no I understand. I wanted. That sounded dirty. Oh no, it's I wanted <laughs> giggity. Um. <laughs> if uh, the documentary about the. Um, about the original Planet of the Apes uh, film series is on there, and I think it is. It should be hosted by Roddy McDowell. I think it's on that Blu-ray box set. If it is, watch it. You will enjoy it immensely. I love that documentary. Um, I remember buying a copy of it from a video store that was going out of business because I don't own any of the Apes films yet. I'm going to get the Blu-ray box set eventually, but I do have that documentary about the Planet of the Apes, and it was f- just wonderful. So definitely peep it. Donnie, there's something I want to talk to you about. Uh-oh. Go ahead. Um, on an episode of the PKD Black Box that aired that aired this month, it, it was the episode that had Jamal Eigel and uh, Alan White talking about their Kickstarter projects, Molly Danger and The Power Principle. Yes, sir. In the beginning of the episode, I was talking with Jamal. We were talking about, like, Megaforce. Then we, like, somehow we brought up Star Trek The Motion Picture, the first Star Trek movie. To which I called and I joked and I said this should be called Star Trek the Elongated TV episode. To which then Jamal and I cracked on the movie because it was quite boring. And I did give a synopsis of what the movie is about. Yeah, there are things I still uh, still appreciate about it, but it's still boring as fuck. Now, <laughs> now a, a good friend of ours, and I won't I don't I won't say names because I don't want to get him in trouble. But he was at work listening to the listening to the podcast. And mm-hmm. and he normally listens to the podcast at work, and people they like will like walk by and hear it and, and stuff, and they pay it no mind, you know, because like I'm kind of shocked because for as much as I cuss on this show and for as much as we cuss on this show, I would never play this shit at work unless I had some he- headphones or earbuds. But more power to him. <laughs> the beginning of the episode starts up. The conversation with Jamal is going. We make the Star Trek jokes and the motion picture jokes, and this dude walks past um, my friend's cubicle. And goes off on him about Star Trek the motion picture. Goes berserk. And he says, why are people always disrespecting that movie? It's a smart movie. It's just a smart science fiction movie. And if you don't get it, I don't understand. Why do people disrespect that movie so much? It's a great film. It's very smart. You got to be smart to understand that movie. So then I get a text message from my friend that tells me this whole story that I'm telling you right now. And... And he's like, man, I can't listen to your podcast at my, sh- at my work anymore. You cause a controversy. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And he explained the whole Star Trek situation. To which then I said, you know what? When the new episode airs, then when the next episode airs, and then this will be on this episode right, that you're listening to right now, I said, I want you to turn up your speakers, point them at the person that complained to you about Star Trek The Motion Picture, and I will give this gentleman two responses. The following response comes from Sean Pryor, host of the PKD Black Box. This is the polite response. In regards to your retort 
about Star Trek The Motion Picture. <clears throat> Sir, I understand your feelings about Star Trek The Motion Picture and the place that it holds within your heart. I get it. When I said what I said about Star Trek The Motion Picture, it was my personal opinion. I feel the movie is boring. I feel the movie is dull. I watched all the old school Star Trek episodes and even the worst Star Trek episode from its initial run is a thousand times better than that movie. There are pieces of that film which I do find mildly entertaining. Aesthetically, it looks nice, but as a whole, Robert Wise is lacking something in the composition of that film. Hence, I call it Star Trek The Elongated TV Episode. Now, without the original motion picture, and even though it still made enough money to, to merit a sequel, without Star Trek The Motion Picture, we do not get the great Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. So, there is a purpose for Star Trek The Motion Picture. I do not like the film. I don't. And it's my right to not like the film because I have an opinion just like you do. You can enjoy it and I can dislike it. And that is where we'll leave it. Good day, sir. Opinion number two comes from the other, other side of Sean. That doesn't come out too often. This side of me, I normally don't bring out unless I feel it's necessary because sometimes some people don't like it when the other side of Sean comes out. So mm -hmm. I need you to once again turn the speakers to the person that did not like my opinion on Star Trek The Motion Picture, and this is what I'm going to tell them. This is the other side of Sean. Motherfucker, let me tell you something. I will say what I want to say, when I want to say it, that movie's a piece of shit. It will continue to be a piece of shit. It's awful. Okay? It's bad. Let's be real. It's bad. Star Trek The Motion Picture would not even exist if Star Wars did not take shit over in 1977. Originally, Star Trek The Motion Picture wasn't even supposed to be a fucking motion picture. It was supposed to be something like Star Trek Phase 2 on NBC when they decided to say, hey, maybe we should bring Star Trek back as a TV series. But guess what? Star Wars made a shit ton of money. So what did Paramount say? You know what? Go get the original crew back and let's go make a Star Trek motion picture. But guess what? You had a bad fucking script, all right? The script was boring. The movie is boring. The shit is dull. I don't care what anybody says. It's my opinion, okay? All right, so don't sit there and put my boy on blast at work just because you like a movie and you think we're not smart enough to enjoy the movie. Motherfucker, let me tell you something else. I'm a college-educated man. I have a degree. I work in IT, which means that you have to have some form of intelligence to understand what the fuck it is you're doing on a goddamn day-to-day -day basis. So do not sit here and question my intelligence. All right? Wow. All right? Period. The movie is bullshit. That's my opinion, all right? It's bullshit. I love The Wrath of Khan. I love, I love The Undiscovered Country. I, shit, I even love The Voyage Home, okay? Which is basically a movie that says, we have no money, so let's put them on Earth for a while, okay? We have no budget. Let's put them on Earth and let's have some laughs. Let's have some fun. Just understand, I have the right to my opinion. You have the right to yours. But don't sit there and put my good friend that just wants to enjoy a podcast, get some laughs, and have a good time. Don't put his shit on blast in the middle of the damn work office because you get upset about an opinion. It's a fucking opinion. All right? All right? It's a fucking opinion. Just deal with it. So go back, sit down in your goddamn chair, do your goddamn work, and shut the fuck up. Wow. Now... Once again, this is that that's the side of Sean that does not come out often. I normally keep him away because he gets so angry. And I you know me, man. I'm a very reserved individual. I'm very calm, I'm very collective in what I do. So to my friend at his job, if you played that, I hope you didn't get fired. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, yeah, I just got done with uh, uh, Scout Volume 9, which is awesome. There's one left. It's already been pre-ordered. What is this? It's on, it's on its way, and then that's it. Scalp no more. Oh, Scalped. Okay, I thought you said Scout. I was like, what's Scout? Oh. Scalped. Oh, okay, cool. Scout was a book. I think it was done by, was it done by Eclipse Comics, or Scout was about the uh, damn you, Sean Pryor. <laughs> no, but no, no, what's Scout? Now, I know of Scalped, but I've never read any Scalped. So can you give me like a little 411 as to what Scalped is about? It's a fantastic story about a dude who is undercover at the Indian Reservation. He's undercover for the FBI Indian Reservation that he grew up on. And it's insane is what it is. You don't know which way the dude's going to go or he gets involved with this crime. It's just so much shit. <laughs> um, you're talking about uh, 55 issues I've read so far. It, it uh, He gets in with the crime boss, but you don't know if he's going to uh, become a criminal himself, if he's going to... Uh, if he's going to uh, do what he's there to do and bust this dude and uh, f- find out who killed his mom, and it's crazy. It's 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 written by Jason Aaron. It's 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 an awesome book, man. I, I I've heard it be uh, compared to it's kind of like the Sopranos on an Indian reservation. Ooh, it's dope, dude. It's one of my favorite books. I look forward to that trade every time it comes out, and as soon as my shipment gets in there, if it's in that box, it's the first thing I read, and it's almost over. Like I think actually the the last trade has been solicited and I, last month was it and I ordered it so I'm just waiting for it and that's the end of the story right there. Cool. I read Fables Volume Seventeen. And that was about um, the uh, the north the North Wind is dead so now one of um, the big bad wolf and Snow White's kids got to take his place because that was their grandfather mm. and so that was like uh, a that's basically what the gist of that whole story was. And the other, the other winds are trying to, um, they're planning on killing the family before the, they, they can crown a new north wind so they could take over the territory. And then you have like a revolution in Oz. There's like three all different kinds of storylines going on. So uh, have you ever read Fables? I've read some of the uh, spinoffs, so like like little short uh, miniseries like the uh, Cinderella one. I read that. Uh, I read that miniseries, and I really enjoyed that one because like, oh, I didn't even. I didn't, was dope, man. Both of those were good. Yeah, I only read the first one. I haven't got to the second one yet, and I didn't even have to see. The nice thing about that was I didn't even have to read Fables to enjoy that, mini, that first mini. Right, right. That was great. So, uh, so yeah. Um, Let's see what today. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just. I'm trying to think of what else I because I just got my shipment in, so I've been reading a lot, and I, I've just, I, uh, I got like five trades in this, uh, four trades in one hardcover, and uh, and I'm, I'm down to the hard. I'm just starting to, uh, I buy lock and key and hardcover. Mm-hmm. And so I just got the fifth volume. I haven't started it yet, so I'm. Uh, and I know our buddies, the Legion of Dudes, are actually doing an episode on that soon. Oh, I read Daredevil Volume 1 by Mark Wade, Dude! I never liked Daredevil. I couldn't get into him. Just couldn't couldn't get into the character. I don't know why. It just never clicked with me since I was a little kid when Frank Miller was writing it all the way to, you know, Kevin Smith. I bought that hardcover because everybody told me it was great. It was an okay story. Bendis... Who was the other two? Brew Baker was on it for a long time. I couldn't. I just couldn't get into it. This was fantastic. I was intrigued. 
I, I was into it. I liked it. I, and I, I read it all in one sitting. Daredevil Volume 1 and Scalped I read in one sitting. And Fables I read in two sittings. And uh, the other one I read <laughs> was Buffy Season 9 Volume 1. I read that all in one sitting, too. Are, that you, was, are you still enjoying Buffy? Oh, I am. I am. I, I'm enjoying uh, Buffy, and I'm also enjoying um, Angel and Faith, which is a, is a good series. And it's written by, uh, off the top of my head, I think it's Christos Gage, and it's drawn, for the most part, by Rebecca Isaacs. There's someone filling in for I think, in these past couple of issues. But, uh, and I love me some Rebecca Isaacs. Uh, weird, man. I actually met her in New York, and I, and I was just, all of a sudden, I went into fanboy mode. And I was like, I'm a big fan of your work. <laughs> sitting there with a recorder in my hand like I could have asked her you know if you want to talk about them no yeah. no not. no you got it you know, when I buy Angel and Faith I only buy the ones with your covers on them <laughs> you know like I just turn into like oh it's okay it happens to the best of us Donnie but see next time you see her you won't do that hopefully no I'll be like what's up <laughs> <laughs> I went to Half Price Books uh, a few weeks ago. You're lucky. Your Half Price Books. Don't worry, they'll put one in Connecticut sometime. That shit right now. See where they're at. But uh, they they had a sale a few weeks ago, and I was walking around, had a couple of dollars in my pocket, and um, I found um, like Greg the Bunny, which used to be on Fox many, many, many years ago. After oh yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, What's his name? Uh, Seth Seth Green, right? Yeah. Then a couple a couple years later, after it got canceled. Greg the Bunny ended up on IFC, and and basically the premise of the new Greg the Bunny series on IFC, they basically parody uh, like independent films or 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 small market films that became really big. And I had Volume One a while ago, and I loved it. Well, I didn't know they came out with a Volume Two, so I found it. It was at uh, it was at Half Price Books in shrink wrap for like five bucks. So I was like, oh, okay, cool, I'll get this. I haven't had time to watch it yet, but I was like, oh, awesome. I didn't know this existed. I'll buy it. So, and I had a coupon, which helped too. So then I'm walking back toward like the clearance section in the back. Now, the clearance section in the back are like all the either books that nobody wants to buy or the kind of, you know, little torn up or VHS tapes or like DVDs that for some reason are back there. And some of them are really good, but they're just back there in clearance. So I was looking around. I was like, okay, let's see what they have. Let's see what they have back here in clearance. And they had this uh, two-disc DVD set called Heroes of World Class. And it's the story of the Von Erichs. This was an action. Oh, nice. Yeah, and this one, this this isn't the WWE World Class Wrestling documentary. Oh, I think I have this one. Is this one like four hours long? Um, maybe, maybe I haven't I haven't checked it out yet. But this is a Heroes of World Class where they. Talk I do about, have that, dude. That's a good. That's a good DVD. Okay, yeah. This is like the two disc set. I'm really excited to check it out because they basically talk about how the you know, the world class wrestling was built as a way to promote the Von Erichs and and like in the Sportatorium in Texas and how mm-hmm. like you know they're on this rise and then everything fell apart eventually after after but it took a while for it to fall apart but they talk about the Von Erichs they talk about world class championship wrestling uh, WCCW as it were. Mm-hmm. And um, and how it was one of the most syndicated television programs in America, and it also made the Von Erich family household names, all types of stuff. So 
I've been, and this, this documentary came out in 2006 and it was one of those things where I always wanted to buy it, but I always forgot about it. So I go back to the clearance section and there it is. And I look, I'm like, oh, let's see how much it is. It's probably like, you know, four or five bucks. I'll buy it if it's $4, four or $5. It was on clearance for a dollar. No way. Seriously, it was a dollar. And I had a coupon. I had a coupon for 50, 50% off my entire purchase. So, yeah. So, yeah, it was. So I can't wait to watch this. I mean, I've seen the, uh, I've seen, like I said, I've seen the WWE documentary. Yeah, uh, no, that's, yeah, it's nothing like that. Yeah. And the thing is with the WWE documentary or WWF, however you, whatever you want to call them this week, my biggest problem with that one is, is that it focuses a lot on the Freebirds. Mm-hmm. And I can swear the Freebirds weren't, I mean, the Freebirds weren't in WCCW that long. But but I might be wrong. You know, time is a very strange thing. No, they had a long rivalry with. Uh, Did they have a long rivalry with the Von Erics? I, I can't. Yeah, I can't I can't yeah, somebody else too, though. Okay, I, it was just it was just weird I, because like it just kept focusing on 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 them a lot. And yeah, you're right. You're probably right. They were an integral part of WCCW. But at the same time, I'm thinking we should be talking about the Von Erics more. Can we talk about other popular people? in the documentary so uh, but I'm really excited to watch this video very very excited I can't wait <laughs> cannot wait so so yeah that that's all I've really that's all I've really had time to like really pick up yeah I picked up some some books along the way but I'm just adding them to the ever-growing pile of books that I need to read before they turn to dust and <laughs> and yeah so that, that, that that's really about it Uh, just to go back to Planet of the Apes real quick. Okay. The regular series that Boom is doing is awesome. It's a lot of fun. And then you could get it on um, two trades right now that's out there as we speak. I think the third one has been solicited. The one that uh, Gabriel Hardman and his wife... Karina uh, uh, Becco. Karina Becco, thank you. Is uh, They are doing... I think this is going to be their third miniseries that is in this previews right now. But they did um, Betrayal, the Planet of the Apes, and Exile, the Planet of the Apes. The one that's solicited right now. Looking it up. Planet of the Apes Cataclysm is their third. They're doing a series of four-issue miniseries. So Betrayal is done. Exile just wrapped up. And uh, Cataclysm is the next one. Sweet. So, and the thing of it is, is um, Gabe's not even drawing them. Oh, what the newer ones? The newer ones, yeah. He's just writing them with his wife. Oh, that's fantastic! It's fantastic getting that writing you know? money. Yeah, <laughs> getting that writing money. Get that writing money. That's that's still cool though. I mean, how cool is it though, like to be able to work with your wife and, and enjoy something that you both love? I gotta throw out two books before we leave, man. Oh, please throw them at both me. from Image. What you got? Both from Image, and one is called Hoax Hunters, and it's kind of like a about a uh, uh, a reality show, kind of like um, Finding Bigfoot or Destination Truth, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more to it. Like uh, something secret is going on, and some kind of government agency kind of thingy, and it's done by Michael Mordecai, and I, I think that's how he pronounces his name. And Steve Seeley, Tim Seeley's brother. And the art is by Axel Medillion. 
God, I'm bad with names. <laughs> it's, it's got a. It does have a gorgeous uh, Tim Seeley cover. Of course, I'm a big fan of Tim Seeley. Everybody knows that. Yes. It's from Image. First issue just came out. Uh, I liked it a lot. I really did. Uh, and the other one is by Tim Seeley and Eisner Award winner Mike Norton. Mm-hmm. Uh, congratulations, Mr. Norton. Yes, yes. And uh, that is called Revival. Heard a lot of things about this, man. Everybody's been like talking about it on Twitter for, you know, well, as of now, probably be weeks now. Um, how is it, man? I dug it. It's interesting. The uh, dead people in this town come back to life, but they're not like a, uh, they're not zombies. They're just, they just came back, they died, and they came back to life. But then you find out that uh, um, the sheriff puts his um, his daughter, who's also a cop, in charge of a task force, like a small, uh, like almost like a sub department that deals with the revivalists, mm-hmm. um, because they just they're freaking people out in the town because you know grandma was dead and now she's not dead anymore. The uh, adventure ensues. Let's just put it that way. And oh, it's a good book. It's dude. A, okay, cool. I will procure a copy and I will put it on my and hoax stack. hunters. Oh, and hoax hunters, and I will put these books on my stack of books that I ain't read yet. Okay. Oh, although one thing I did do. Uh, there was a book that I that I did take like twenty minutes out of my day, out of my busy ass schedule to read. Long time ago, Dark Horse came out with those uh, one dollar books that were like either first issues or um, just ways of like trying to get readers interested in in like in comics. Mm-hmm. I picked up the the Usagi Yojimbo, Usagi Yojimbo one dollar book by Stan Sakai. Was it good? Why have I let Usagi Yojimbo passed me by all these decades. Well, they got a gorgeous uh, slipcase hardcover. I think it might even be two hardcovers and one big slipcase. Mm-hmm. And it's the first like bajillion issues. My, I read that first issue and, and, it, I, and it, I loved it, dude. And it wasn't re- relatively expensive either. <sighs> I mean, for, for what you get. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah. Like it's not. But yeah, man. Um, from what I understand, and I, dude, I read the first issue and absolutely loved. It. I love the artwork. I love the layouts. I love the action, the dialogue, everything about it. And it just like pulled me in, and I have to read more of it now. And it made me, it made me like excited for comics. And I'm like, how did I pass up on this shit when I was like a teenager? You know what I mean? How the fuck did I pass up on this? I was fucking reading Turtles like every single month. I mean, I mean, right. all the all the variations of turtles. I even saw Usagi Yojimbo in the Turtles cartoon. You know, it was like come didn't that Go didn't ahead. that appear first? In the didn't that where his first appearance wasn't it? In like a, was it a backup story or something in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Or am I wrong? Cannot remember. Cannot remember for the life of me. I want to say that he had his own book. Usagi had his own book, and it was so popular that. Um, the people that created the, the cartoon and like the creators of the turtles was like, "Yo, Stan, come get some of this turtles money." And I remember the action figure? Yes, yeah, man. Stan was eating. Well, Stan, well, Stan was eating anyway because Stan was working on the Simpsons, doing Usagi Yojimbo, getting that turtles animation money. And I'm just like, man, that was a wonderful period for for comics back then, man. Everybody was eating, almost everybody. Usagi, I, I am now officially hooked on Usagi Yojimbo, and I need everything Usagi Yojimbo, and so I can put that on my continuing stack of books. So then, by by the year 2020, I can have my own library, and I will never leave the house. 
And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment, or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard. Daryl had the nerve to put listen as of this recording I was celebrating my, my five year anniversary with my wife been oh to, congratulations thank you been married five years five years I don't know how she puts up with me man I don't know me how. neither th- th- thanks man five years five years five years don't know how she puts up with me and but i'm very thankful beyond appreciative love her to death and um, she's been my biggest supporter of everything I do and you know so i get up and i'm like okay you know she had to step out had to to go run some errands so i was like well let me wrap let me wrap her gift for and you know get the card get the little card out and stuff and and so i I do that and like i'm relaxing i was like let me hop on facebook see what's going on so what does daryl do on my five-year anniversary he puts on my facebook page a drawing of a dude being like walked out of a building after like cutting up Gonzo on an opera on like this like wooden table, and then up above you see like these like um like these like wall mounts, and it has the heads of like uh, Fozzie and Piggy and Kermit or whatever. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? What the fuck is wrong with you? Look, I know you hate the Muppets, Daryl. Okay, I know you hate the Muppets. How you gonna post that shit on, on my wall during my five year anniversary, dog? Why? Why would Darryl you do don't that? Care. Daryl don't care. He don't care. And then like all these other people commented like, "What the fuck is wrong with Daryl?" You know what is wrong with him? Look, I understand if you don't like the Muppets. Okay, I understand. I'm not gonna hate on you because you, you know you don't like the Muppets and you don't like anything fun, and everything has to be dark and dreary. But still, let people enjoy the Muppets. Quit putting dead Muppets on my on my Facebook page. <laughs> Quit it. Keep it up and put Rick, Rick Astley videos on your Facebook page. Oh, so irritated with that boy. So irritated. That's, that's your friend. That is your friend, by the way. Your friend. Your friend. <laughs> um, but no, okay. Dude, the closest, um, the closest half price books to me is, uh, Monroeville, Pennsylvania, which is where the which, which is where the Pittsburgh Comic Con is. Yes, so you better hop on on your bike and start traveling, sir. No, sir. <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm really surprised that you guys don't have don't have a half price books where you live. I mean, nope. I I think that that's something that would fit that would fit so well. I mean, it goes hand in hand with where you live. Mm-hmm. That is weird. 
That is. Although I'm sure my wallet is thinking. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, dude, man, and like they started selling toys there too. Shut the f- really? Yeah, man. Like uh, they've started they started selling toys and and board games. People have been turning in board games. Some of them are still shrink uh, shrink wrapped. Some of them aren't, but they'll check for the quality of them. And they'll, and they'll they'll resell them, or they'll buy toys from um from like either resellers or retailers that are going out of business. And sometimes you'll get some at good prices. So they're 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 trying to once again expand on what on what they do. And they always have plenty of UCDs, cassette tapes, albums, comics, trade paperbacks. I gotta check that shit. I'm looking up Big Daddy Kane right here because I don't get this shit shipped to my house. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, that's how I got. That's how I, I'm. I'm trying to honestly piecemeal my Big Daddy Kane collection together through half price books. That's where I found my Prince of Darkness CD. That's where I found. <laughs> that's where I found the. Um, it's a Big oh, Daddy. Oh shit! Thing. It's a Big Daddy thing. What you say? Taste of chocolate. They got, they got taste of chocolate. They got long live Kane. Oh. Veteran days. With that, Z's. That's that's the album that you shouldn't buy. That was the that. very best of Big Daddy Kane, and then the Prince of Darkness, where the sparkles like vampire bloodthirsty. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, man. That's uh, the one that got get busy on it, huh? Get busy. Yeah. Yes. 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 I, I'm, I'm telling you, if I'm if I'm able to piece together the the Big Daddy, like all Big Daddy Kane CDs before Veterans Day. Oh, no, they don't. What? What? They got, it looks like a job for. Dude, I like that album. I do, too. That's where he tried to be gangster. <laughs> it is. Oh. That's the one with the tune on it. I kicked him in the belly like I was Jim Kelly. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. <sighs> So I said, I'm trying. Seriously, Donnie, I'm honestly trying to get the entire catalog. Oh, I will. I will. Now I got a vacation coming up, so I just, you know, my my only plans are to record tales from the attic and do yard work. That's it. Hey, man, you gotta do that housework, man. You're a homeowner. Oh, that yard work never stops. Oh, I know it doesn't. Trust me, I know because I do the same shit you do. Get out there, mow the lawn, got to trim shit, you know, got to pull those weeds out, got to, you know, got to get that grass coming up from the cracks of the sidewalk, which will eventually turn to weeds, so you got to attack that. I mean, like, you have to become, like, a strategist <laughs> to, to, like, take out all, all the dangers of the lawn. I fucking... Well, see, that guy's all screwed up, man, because, like, I, um, when I messed up my thumb, I couldn't go out and do none of it, so it all fell behind. And you don't understand when I tell you I got bushes on my property, son. I am surrounded. Mm-hmm. I am surrounded. Yeah. <laughs> so there. Yeah, you got man. You got like cobra troopers hiding in your in your lawn right now, dude. You don't even know. <laughs> it is ridiculous. Get out there and cut that shit. Ugh. Or you, hey man, you could get Daryl to come and do it. My legs, yeah, right. <laughs> Daryl yesterday was complaining. I, he listen to this fool. Got someone to come to do his yard work. Motherfucker got six feet of property. <laughs> wait okay. a wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Six he feet. got a landscaper. His front yard is six feet long. All right, six feet. Okay, sit. Six feet. 
and he got a landscaper. That is the definition of lazy. Because I mean, he doesn't even need a a gas powered mower to take care of that lawn. L- listen to me, listen to me, Sean. Uh-huh. By the time he turns off the lawnmower, it's time to turn it off. <laughs> That's how small his front yard is. Okay, you got one hedge. You got one hedge and a patch of grass. One grinds. hedge. <sighs> I told him yesterday. I said, man. You go out there with a pair of scissors, it'd still take you a half hour to cut your lawn. <laughs> that makes absolutely no sense at all. I'm, I, and he got a landscaper, which I'm sure charged him out the ass for that, too. Yeah, because how many... I'm sure that landscaper... How much do you think landscapers make in New York City? Man, you know they I mean, he lives outside the city, but still... Still, you know you're making good money. Because, like, landscapers don't play. Doesn't matter whether it's a small town or, or a big town or a big city. Doesn't matter. They gonna get paid. Especially in New York. You might as well jack up them rates. So, that dude basically gave the lawn, like, a quick haircut. And, like, probably took a pair of scissors to the hedge and went, snip, snip. Okay, that'd be $200. And he could take that money. And he could take that money and take his girlfriend out to get, like, a, to like a nice dinner. Instead, he gonna put that on. He gonna put that on like some lawn care service. Where he could take his ass outside, get the little push mower, and zip, 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 and it's done. I mean, he could probably cough on the hedge, and the hedge would probably be trimmed. I mean, that is ridiculous. But you know what, man? It's, it's his money. He a grown ass man. I ain't gonna tell him I live his life. You need to take your ass out there and cut that damn lawn, man. It's ridiculous. No, I can't do that. He's grown. He's grown. So I need to stop. You take your ass outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it always goes back to Daryl. I know it does, man. But you want to Because, see, the dude, man, at least like once every other week, he texts me and it will say, like, he'll, like, you know, my phone will go off. I'm like, who's texting me? It'll be Daryl. And you know what? And you know what he'll say? Jerk. <laughs> see? See? Every time. That's what it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Or I'll be at work, right? I'm working hard. And, and, um, and and I'm working hard for the money, Sean. And ain't no one treating me right. Okay, <laughs> so I'm just working. Yeah. And all of a sudden, my phone will go off, and I'm like, "Oh, who's texting me? Is my wife get home from work? She gonna tell me she loves me?" And then I look, and it's Daryl, and it says, "Fuck you." <laughs> See, and how does that make you feel better about yourself? It don't. It don't, man. Yeah, man. No. So now I already want to kick shit out of the people I work with, and now. I want to do it more because I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take all my frustrations from this text out on this dude next to me. Right. <laughs> See, Daryl is nothing but an instigator. He's the instigator when he ain't even there. Exactly. He is the digital age instigator. He is the DAI. And and it's not just us. He does that shit too, man. I know he does it to the DC noise guy. Yep. Oh, yeah. I know he man he does it to everybody dude he, he does sure it to does. everybody so but still so i guess it's like it's in in his own way it's like he's saying that we're special to him so his way of saying fuck you i guess is his is like a bizarre way of saying i love you i guess it's still weird as fuck but I, but then again i'm not a therapist i'm not licensed I, I can't translate this shit no more. I'm grown and I'm tired. So I no, I'm not I'm not even gonna try.
dude, me and my wife are going to go see Batman tonight. And like I said, she's more excited about going to see it than I did. <laughs> I am. Because, well, obviously she hasn't listened to four, 14 podcasts that already told her what the hell was going on with the... Why did you listen to those, man? Well, because, you know what, dude? People can talk all they want to talk, but... You know, it's the you get you always have your own experience. Okay. You know. Yeah. But shit, if I didn't, I wouldn't have nothing to listen to. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoy the movie. I think you will. I I enjoyed The Dark Knight Rises immensely. So I am really. I just hope my old ass can stay up. You can do it. What time y'all gonna go see it? Six. You can do it. And so I'll be there to like twelve. No, you won't be there till twelve. After the trailers are done, uh, you'll be there to probably to about nine thirty. You could do it, champ. You could do it. You know, just take you some Red Bull, and uh, before you walk in there, or some Monster, or whatever it is, the energy drinks that folks be drinking that makes pe- makes people's hearts explode, and mm-hmm. and just get in there, and you'll be ready. I'll be really curious just to see or to know what you think of it after after you watch it, though. Yeah, I can't wait, man. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I like I said, I loved it, and. Um, and like I, my mom loved it so much. She texted me twice and said that she's like, "Yeah, I'm about to go watch this again." She had just finished wow. watching it. She's like, "Yeah, I'm about to go back in and watch it again." So, so yeah, man, yeah, it was it was dope. This it was really really good. I, I loved every last minute of it. So, I mean, it got me so hyped that I went back and I started watching Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. And yeah, man, it's yeah, it's 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 a great series of films. The Nolan Batman series is a great series of films. So so yeah, man, it's it's a nice closer. It's a nice closer. So you go enjoy that, sir. All right, I will. And and then when I'm on vacation, I'm gonna go see. Um, even though it's got bad reviews, I'm gonna go see uh, Total Recall. Yeah, I. Th- and um, I'm gonna go see. Uh, I'm trying to get my wife to go see Expendables. We're trying to figure out what day she got off. Okay, I really do. Now it's Schwarzenegger. You know, you know Schwarzenegger's doing movies again now too. Mm-hmm. He's got a movie coming out. I think it's either later later this year or early next year or something like that. Or a couple, I think. You know, that dude is going to be in a western. What? He's starring in a western, and I'm just like, shut up. <laughs> He's just dad. Get along with the doggy. Do it. Get along, yeah, with the doggy. <laughs> Give me a sarsaparilla. 